You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. question what good is freedom of speech or freedom of expression if you have to worry about being stabbed or attacked for speaking or expressing i'm talking of course about the situation involving salman rushdie salman rushdie is a world famous author and uh, back in the 1980s, he wrote a novel. I want to I want to stress this is a fictional novel. He wrote a fictional novel called Satanic Verses, the Satanic Verses, which the Ayatollah of Iran at the time, the supreme leader of Iran, did not care for, and he issued a fatwa calling for Salman Rushdie to be killed. So that fatwa was rescinded. Evidently, there are some people, there are some groups that take their fatwas very seriously. And even when the Ayatollah rescinds a fatwa, they still think that maybe Salman Rushdie is somebody that should be attacked. So, um, thankfully, Salman Rushdie was removed from a ventilator Saturday. I'll tell you, I... I you know, I try to read as much as I can, but there's so many different stories in the news over the weekend that you try to read a little bit of this, a little bit of that. The Salman Rushdie story I found so egregious, so objectionable, so vomit-inducing, to be honest. This was the only story that I read every single article, every word of every single article that I could find on this. Because I am amazed that in the year 2022, people still have to worry about being stabbed and attacked and possibly killed because of what they've written. So Friday, this was I, this was all I thought about the whole weekend. Friday, uh, Rushdie was attacked at the uh, the Chautauqua Institution, which is a nonprofit education and retreat center. Now he suffered liver damage. He has severed nerves in his arm and his eye. His son says he's probably going to lose his eye. The 24-year-old man that uh, stabbed him pled not guilty to attempted murder and assault charges. A judge ordered him held without bail. 
Uh, so I'm sure this is someone that's going to be found guilty. I don't want to say I'm sure, but I can't imagine he's found anything other than guilty. And I hope they throw the book at him. And this is exactly the type of person that belongs in prison and should never be free again, as far as I'm concerned. But this attack was shocking and outrageous. And I'm glad that we're seeing a lot of artists, a lot of political people, a lot of free speech advocates rally to Salman Rushdie's defense. But to me, there is a broader issue here. And I have to confess, I've never read uh, Satanic Verses, but I did order the book over the weekend. The broader issue is the fact that Look, I have friends that are Muslim. I've known I have neighbors that are Muslim. I get along with a lot of Muslim folks, and they seem like great people. But fundamentalist Islam, as this attack indicates, is totally and completely at odds with Western democracy and Western democratic liberal values. You cannot adhere to fundamentalist Islam and at the same time believe in the freedoms that we cherish here in America. I'm sorry, but they are completely at odds and they don't go with one another. Um, Salman Rushdie is a fascinating guy. And I don't think when he wrote the Satanic Verses, which he doesn't even consider his best book, by the way, I don't think when he wrote the Satanic Verses that he ever viewed this as something that was going to be his cause, that he was ever going to be the poster child for free speech. Who could have anticipated that some militant Islamist leader, in this case Ayatollah Khomeini, would issue a fatwa to have him killed? And yet his life has largely been defined over the last several decades by... His being a poster child for free speech and folks that are a little too radical for my liking wanting him killed. A couple of years ago, I think it was about four or five years ago, on Curb Your Enthusiasm, they did a whole season, a whole story arc dealing with Salman Rushdie and the issue of fatwas. And I gave Larry David a lot of credit for being willing to poke at some sacred cows in this season of Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. If you don't watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, basically Larry plays a fiction, Larry David plays a fictionalized version of himself. And uh, Larry David has written a musical, ultimately, that will star Lin-Manuel Miranda and F. Murray Abraham, and it's all about the fatwa on Salman Rushdie. Lin-Manuel Miranda plays Salman Rushdie, and F. Murray Abraham plays the Ayatollah. In fact, this is a clip from Fatwa the Musical, which was never really a musical. It was just sort of created for the show Curb Your Enthusiasm. Here I am hiding out now in the hole. Barely eating, barely sleeping, the taking its toll. Wiping like a paper fish to fry now. I know I'll die now. I need a plan I do not like. This man, the scripture, how he mocks me. All this blasphemy and vanity, carnality, exhaust me. It'll cost me my respect in Iran. And so it's time for him to die. Do not like this man. Come on, don't be silly. It was just a book. No book. We now can't let him off the hook. What a coward. God knows that I do not like this man. What am I gonna do? This death sentence is the worst friggin' book review. 
It's books like a sickness that won't quit you. Talk trash about the scripture, not a pretty picture. All I wanted was to win the Booker Prize, guys. Not have them slip my throat and gouge out my eyes, my mind. I can't allow this desecration, this irritation, indignation. Not while I lead this nation. It's up, it's up. Don't try to call a bluff. Deference, as if writing's not hard enough. Even Terrence, traitor, fathers. God knows that I do not lie. So I ordered Satanic Verses over the weekend, and I'm going to read it. I'm skipping it to the the head of uh, the next books that I have to read because I feel like I owe it to Salman Rushdie. I'll tell you, the person who I – and if you want to comment on this situation, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I tell you, one of the people that I think really nailed this situation over the weekend in his commentary – is a person who, I don't care what you think about him, as far as I'm concerned, has been absolutely on the money in terms of radical Islam and radical Islam being completely incompatible with Western democracy. And that is uh, Bill Maher, the host of uh, HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. These are the remarks that he made on Friday. Now, remember, Salman Rushdie is a regular guest uh, of Bill Maher, and they're friendly, too. This is what Bill Maher said Friday. A friend of mine, dear friend of mine, good friend of this show, got stabbed today, Salman Rushdie. I'm sure people have seen this news. Um, he was stabbed by someone named Haj, Hadi Matar. We don't know the motivation yet, but Sal did have some enemies in the past, as I recall. So I'm guessing Hadi is not Amish. <laughs> Sal was in Chattaqua. He was giving a lecture... How about this for irony? About how the U.S. is a safe haven for exiled writers and other artists under threat of persecution. And making that speech itself is unthinkable in most Muslim countries. Salman Rushdie living in most Muslim countries without getting stabbed every day is unthinkable. He goes on, and these are Bill Maher's words. So don't come at me with Islamophobic. Um, sorry, my, uh, the, I can't read an article these days without even these pop-up ads coming. All right. So d- this is what Bill Maher said. So don't come at me with Islamophobic. Phobic means fear, right? Well, Sal had a good reason to be fearful. And when you say phobic, it's just a way to shut off debate. You know, transphobic, Islamophobic. We should have a debate about this. Sorry, but, you know, these things don't go away. Islam is still a much more fundamentalist religion than any of the other religions in the world. And that means they take what's in the holy book seriously. And that has been dangerous for a long time. It's still dangerous. This was 1989 when he was first threatened. He goes on to say, they say we have a long memory. We, we just got Ayman al-Zwahiri. We were bragging about, oh, you can't get away they have a long memory, too. That's uh, Bill Maher's words. Now, um, Iran previously had offered over $3 million in a reward for anyone who killed Rushdie. Iran's government long has distanced ins- itself from Khomeini's decree, but anti-Rushdie sentiment has lingered. In 2012, 
a semi-official religious foundation in Iran raised a bounty for Rushdie from $2.8 million to $3.3 million. So I'm not sure, I can't, uh, obviously I don't have any say over how Islam does things, but it almost seems as if Islam is still waiting for a reformation. And if you're, and you know who I was talking to a little bit yesterday, and he may join me on the radio one day this week, is Dr. Zudi Jasser, who's a veteran of the United States military, but also a Muslim. And he has tried to further the cause of dialogue and of understanding between the West and Islam. And there's a wonderful book, and you can get it on Amazon or any online bookstore. It's called Why the West is Best by Ibn Warwick. That's not his real name. He's afraid to write under his real name because he doesn't want to end up stabbed like Salman Rushdie. But the the and I won't get into the genesis of the gnome de plume Ibn Warwick. But this book essentially makes the case that if you take what's in the Quran literally, then it's completely repressive and completely at odds with freedom. And that the solution to essentially improving life in a lot of these theocratic Muslim countries, whether we're talking Sunni Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia or Shiite Muslim companies like uh, Iran, is a little bit more liberalization. I don't think he uses the term, although he may. It's been a few years since I read the book. A little more sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And this is so frustrating to me. Because here in the United States, we have a separation of church and state. There are a lot of devout Muslims believe that there there's no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet. You can't draw a picture of Muhammad. You can't destroy a picture of Muhammad. That Sharia shows the way to a moral life in this world and paradise in the next. A lot of Muslims put their Islamic faith ahead of their national identity and forbid preachers from other religions from coming into their countries to convert their young. Um, Heresy has no rights. And I do really think that if you have devout Muslims demanding that children be be immersed in their Islamic faith in their schools and believe that teachers who condone or encourage sexual activity among their young are and should be treated as not just perverts, but apostates to be destroyed, that I am really concerned about the future of the world. And again, I don't want to sound anti-Muslim at all, because I'm not. I'm anti-fundamentalist Muslim or fundamentalist Islam if that fundamentalism leads to attacks on writers and artists. And... What made me even sicker than this initial attack on J.K. Rowling, excuse me, on uh, Salman Rushdie, I'll talk about J.K. Rowling in a second, was how many people on social media and in Islamist-affiliated news sources around the world all seemed not just okay with this attack on Salman Rushdie, but appeared to be cheering him on, wishing him death. I'm just amazed that any religion could produce adherence like this. Uh, J.K. Rowling tweeted, 
yesterday. She's the author of the Harry Potter book series. Feeling very stri- very sick right now. Let him be okay. Well, do you know what Twitter user Mir Asif Aziz said in response? Don't worry. You are next. Think about that. I mean, what does that do to free expression in this country? If you're a writer or just a tweeter and you're worried about saying or or doing the wrong thing, lest you end up like Salman Rushdie. Again, freedom of speech is a great thing. It's great that we have the First Amendment. But how great is it if you have to worry not about the government shutting down your printing press, but instead being stabbed when you go to give a talk about the United States being the home of uh, exiled authors? Now, J.K. Rowling is not known for Islamophobia, but she's been accused of it. And, um, you know, the Scottish police, they investigated a threat made to uh, made to uh, J.K. Rowling because of the things that we saw on Twitter. They're investigating this one guy and apparently other similar similar threats that she's gotten. Rowling has in the past been criticized by trans activists who've accused her of transphobia before. So there you have it. I find this incredibly disturbing and a significant erosion of free speech. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Yeah. Hi, Frank. You know, Frank, I wanted to say that I remember, you know, it was uh, 30 years ago. I was much younger, but I always, always, uh, you know, watched current events and what was going on. And I knew when this edict came down from the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, he was still alive at the time. He was in power, I'd say, approximately 10 years uh, prior in 79. Uh, He took power from the Shah who abdicated the throne and decided not to to take on the uh, uh, fundamental forces there. So I knew when the edict came down with the satanic verses against uh, Salman Rushdie that that was a serious thing uh, that occurred. So I think what occurred, uh, what occurred then, excuse me, is I knew right after the uh, threat came down, the, the uh, edict uh, from the uh, Ayatollah, that the uh, authorities took it serious. Uh, uh, Scotland Yard, the English authorities, they had uh, round-the-clock uh, security for uh, Mr. Rushdie. But I think as the years had gone by, unfortunately, he had dropped his guard. And maybe he wasn't uh, living a a low-key as much as he should have. Or maybe he should have had private security. Because it was a horrific attack which took place. I mean, this was a a strong person. Right, but think about what you're saying, Al. You're essentially saying that because of something Salman Rushdie wrote, he should have been more concerned about his own safety and and had greater security precautions. I mean, is that the kind of world you want to live in, where writers have to perpetually worry about being attacked because of something they wrote back in the late 80s? No, no, of course not. But, I mean, I just think – no, I I wish it wasn't like that. But I think because he had uh, this edict come down from a person who was – looked on by so many people in the Islamic world as somebody uh, who was admired, 
that there might be some uh, fanatic out there who would try to do something. And uh, apparently, uh, 30-something years later, it's taken place, and it's a sad it's a sad situation. Well, yeah, thank you, Al. And look, it's not just Salman Rushdie, and it's not even just people that are artists. You know, uh, Pamela Geller, who's a very controversial I guess you could describe her as a critic of Islam. She is somebody that has perpetually lived under the fear of of violence being directed at her because of she she's done things like uh, like sponsored a Muhammad drawing exhibition. Now, I don't think people should do things to intentionally be provocative. Like you had that. Pastor Jones years ago that was trying to stage that Quran burning. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Charlie Hebdo. I certainly don't think they should have been attacked in that uh, that French humor magazine. But did they really need to depict the, uh, you know, these religious symbols, not just the Muslim uh, religious icons, but Catholic icons as well? Did they really need to depict symbols like that in such a disrespectful way. I don't think they did, but they have every right to. You want to sponsor a a Muhammad drawing contest or throw a, uh, you know, have a humor magazine. You know, remember the very well-documented case at the Brooklyn Museum 22 years ago where Mayor Giuliani was not at all happy with the uh, piece of art of the Virgin Mary with elephant dung, elephant dung on her. You could understand why he wouldn't be. A lot of people not happy with a similar artistic expression of Jesus covered in urine. You could understand why people wouldn't be happy about that. But the difference with the Virgin Mary having elephant dung on her and the Charlie Hebdo situation or Salman Rushdie is that in the case of Christian symbols being mocked, I'll say, or insulted, the person that made that Virgin Mary elephant dung artistry didn't have to worry about being stabbed. Salman Rushdie and Charlie Hebdo and Pamela Geller did. And I don't know what the solution is, right? But clearly, this is very troubling. If you look at the the portion of the world population that are adherents to Islam, even if a minuscule portion of Islam is militant, that means we're going to have a big problem in the future. And by we, I'm not talking about people in America. I'm not talking about the West. I'm not talking about non-Islam, uh, Islamic folks. I'm talking about anybody that believes in freedom. If we believe in freedom of expression and free speech, this has got to be the most galling thing you can imagine. So I ordered my copy of uh, Satanic Versa. You know what I was going to do today? And, and then I realized that I have $56 in my bank account. I was going to buy all of the copies of Satanic Verses that I could afford and then just hand them out on the street to people. That's how, how up in arms I felt about this situation. I find it really disgusting, quite frankly. 
uh, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. There are two open lines if you want to jump on board. I've ranted enough, and uh, I'll give you an opportunity to be heard in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. We've got a great show for you. Uh, Kim Iverson joins me next hour. I'll look forward to discussing the issue of free speech in the media with her because she actually parted company from a very prominent media organization recently. And it's not exactly related to the Salman Rushdie issue, but it is related to wanting a world where there is more speech rather than less. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. That's uh, Kanye West. He's uh, singing Stronger. Uh, talking a little bit about this Con- uh, Salman Rushdie situation where he was stabbed on Friday as he was about to give a talk about free speech. I cannot believe this goes on in the world in 2022. And this did not happen in Afghanistan or Iran or Iraq or Saudi Arabia or Qatar. This happened in New York State. I am incredulous at that. At this. And this has underscored my belief that fundamentalist Islam is completely incompatible with contemporary democracy and freedom of speech. And I wonder for the future of the world. And I can, I'm very concerned about it as well. 800-848-9222. I will let you be heard because I have ranted enough. Charlie is in Chester. Hello, Charlie. Oh, Frank, thank you very much for uh, picking me. Uh, this uh, factor about Solomon Rushmi has affected me a, a great deal, and I'll try to explain why. I'm not a famous writer or anything, but I do call into a lot of radio talk shows, as Charlie from Chester, and I talk about religion, and I have thought about exactly that. If I said something on the air uh, that offended them, I wonder if they would go through the trouble of tracking me down and trying to hit me. And I had... I've even talked to my brother about that, and my brother was worried about it. He said, who knows, they might. And so just as a, not even a famous person, but someone that has a little expression in public, I actually am worried about that, and you're exactly right. It's a threat all over, all, worldwide. Well, thank- And there's another thing that I do. I, I write some letters to some publications, and there I put my full name and address, and there I talk about religion. I say to myself, if I find them there, it'd be easy, even easier for them to track me down. And uh, so it's a terrible inhibition against free speech. And 
Uh, the problem is I don't know what uh, what can be done about well, it. Well, and again, I don't know that there's much you can do, Charlie, right? I mean, if you listen to – and that's why I found at what Al from Yonkers was saying, and not that he was wrong, but I found his observation so disturbing, where he basically said Salman Rushdie should have been more careful and had better security. So essentially that's what, what we're saying is free speech is only for those that can afford trained – People with guns to be their bodyguard. No. Free speech should be for everybody without worry about being stabbed. And that's, it's not something that Charlie can do. Not something that Salman Rushdie could do or that uh, Charlie Hebdo can do or Pamela Geller can do. It's something, it's, it's a reformation that needs to take place within Islam. And that's why I was really encouraged by Bill Maher's remarks Because I think a lot of the people that tend to follow Bill Maher are on the left politically. And honestly, I consider myself more – I guess I'm pretty centrist, but I consider myself more liberal than conservative. But the reason I consider myself liberal is because I like things like free speech. Um, And call me crazy, but I don't think you should have to worry about being stabbed for writing a book. And – I was very heartened by Bill Maher's remarks because I think there's the temptation to oversimplify the Islam issue or the radical Islam issue. And there's this feeling that only conservatives are concerned about fundamentalist Islam and its chilling effect on world freedom. And Bill Maher, who is popular on the left, he's someone that I think could maybe break through to some folks that wouldn't necessarily view this as a traditionally liberal argument, which it is, in my view. 800-848-9222. Corey is in Palm Bay. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Hi. Uh, I'm with you on this. Uh, I believe that all radical forms are pretty much counter um, productive and shouldn't, I mean, against all our values. Well, I, um, I agree with you. And look, I, I, we've done whole segments on this show about some of the problems that go on in the Hasidic Jewish community. But you don't really see many, um, many Hasidic Jewish uh, protesters stabbing. stabbing people. You know, so that's the difference right. is I'm against fundamentalism with anything you know it doesn't even have to be religion it could be a political movement as well but it's it's the number of fundamentalist muslims that seem okay with taking to violence that i find particularly troubling i as well and if you look at the um population of the world and population wise um these people are way outnumber any kind of Jewish radical, which which I'm not for either, because they put down women. And <clears throat> same thing with any radical religion state. Some somebody's being put down, but um, to put somebody and force them into one of these hijabs in the middle of summer where they can't show their face. And do you think? I, I don't think that's. Um, freedom of religion, I think that if they, this person, particular woman, had freedom, she wouldn't be wearing that. 
Yeah, well, that's a big that's a big uh, debate in uh, in France uh, whether or not this burqa ban is something that is that should be considered. Uh, look, that's beyond the scope of what I'm dealing with. I mean, I agree with you that if women are being forced to wear burkas that or a burkini, right? That's a that's not exactly a great sign of a free society. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Lamar in Manhattan. Hello Lamar. Good evening, Mr. Morano. I just want to say that in the execution of my federal service, I've been around the world several times. Many of my deployments were in the Persian Gulf area, so I'm more than superficially acquainted with Islam. And I can tell you this, when Muslim, uh, when the Muslim population reaches parity with the non-Muslim population in this country and eventual superiority, because we should recall Muslims have more than one wife and their wives are encouraged to have as many children as they can physically. When that occurs, you're not going to have any more pride parades in this country. You're not going to have transgender story times in your schools. And to all of the demographics within the sound of my voice who roundly criticized and attacked Donald John Trump when he attempted to impede uh, certain Muslim populations from coming into this country, be careful for what y'all wish for. Do you recall what happened in Orlando when a Muslim who was allowed into this country and under a refugee status killed 50, 50, ladies and gentlemen, people in a nightclub because he was homophobic and he felt it his Islamic duty to do that? We all remember what happened to the grandson of Van Gogh. Uh, Be careful what you wish for, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, the only thing I will correct, Lamar, is that Omar Mateen, the shooter in Orlando was born in New York. He was not allowed into this country under refugee status. He was born here. But in some respects, I think that underscores not necessarily your point, because I don't want to make this a whole big political thing. It underscores mine, which is that it doesn't have to do with with uh, people coming here from Saudi Arabia or Iran or Qatar or Kuwait or wherever. It, it has to do with an ideology that's endemic to a fundamentalist interpretation of this religion. Uh, and it's such a downer. I don't even want to, I don't want to make the whole show about this, but honestly, it's all of that I've been thinking about the whole weekend. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Amir is in Boston. Hello, Amir. Hey, Frank. First of all, you know, I'm from Boston and I was born in Iran, but I was pretty much raised here. Now, in my opinion, it's, of course, Islam by some people view the wrong way, they act criminal. I mean, what this guy did, I'm not for guns, but if I was there, I'd put a bullet in his head. Because what happened to Salman Rushdie was disgusting. But that being said, what's even more to this country, or every other country is more threatening, is nationalism. Because as we speak right now, the person who's killing the most people, the most threat to this country is Putin. Not Iran and China. Nationalism, to me, is a Worst threat. What's your, what do you think about that? Um, I, I don't agree. But just the, the, the before we get to why I, I don't agree, when you say Putin has killed yeah. more, um, m- more who? As we speak right now. Oh, has as killed. As we speak right now. I mean, as we speak right now, the, uh, when it comes to Holocaust right now, it's Putin. Unless I'm mistaken, what other countries come in a, a serious, ho- I mean, killing numbers of kids, innocent women, and, and because. They believe that that land belongs to them, which it doesn't, you know. So right now, as we speak, it's not 
Pakistan's. I mean, they have their uh, their. Uh, don't get me wrong. Iran has. I don't like the government. I don't. I no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't think anybody does. But um, I mean, what, what yeah. about like, for instance, what I mean, I, I don't. I hate to play whataboutism and say this country's yeah. doing that. But what about Yemen, for instance, right now, the war in Yemen? Well, that is again. I, people saying outside, it's a religious issue. Again, it's about tribalism. It's the same thing I think is going on with Israel and Palestine. I don't think it's a safe thing. I say it about right. land and borders, you know? And uh, again, to me, is yes, religion has some, it's somewhat culprit here. But overall, I think tribalism and nas- nas- uh, nationalism, that's one thing I, w- I thought Trump is a very scary candidate because the nationalistic fever he, he put out, projected out there, which I thought was scary. Because to me, the number one threat in any country is nationalism. There's nothing wrong with well, Why do you country. say that? Why do you say that, Amir? Because it happened to my country, too. It's the same thing. Well, isn't country this... But this, this is... Country. Right, but this is your country, right? The United States. Well, I'm Iranian-American. Right, okay. So, right? but why do so, you think... Yeah. Why do you think nationalism is a, is a threat? Because it projects ab- absolutism. In other words, like... Uh, uh, I'll forget about Trump. I'll give you an example. Like uh, this country, military budget has to be number one on the agenda. If it's not, you're not American. We're no, no. About. Well, no. I mean, look, I, I don't yeah. think that's I don't think that's true at all. I mean, I think you could say we should have a, a smaller defense budget and still support yeah. compromise and yeah. still support a you know a nationalist agenda that's emphasizing borders and and maintaining american traditions i guess i i um and I, I guess i'm just not clear in terms of why you think nationalism is the is the villain in terms of fomenting worldwide violence because he breathes out like my country right or wrong you don't like it leave you like it great i'm against it like in my opinion and i think bill clinton said the best he goes the reason why this country is so great it's not because of our advanced technology, not because of military might, not because of our financial wealth. It's because we have mastered the art of compromise. So if one party says, no, if we, in other words, like uh, whichever party you think you are, whatever party, party you are, you are you're loyal to and all that. If one party says, no, this is the way, this is where America should be, that is a sign of nationalism. And I think that's what started in World War II, didn't it? Well, I think maybe the more of a case with uh, with World War One on that front, but I think um, I see. I, I don't agree, Amir, honestly, and I appreciate the thoughtfulness with which you uh, which with which you put your thoughts together. But I, to me, nationalism is another form of patriotism. I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking your country's interests should be paramount. In terms of when you go to vote or when you try to make foreign policy decisions or trade decisions, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, if you're going to be um, if you're going to be discriminatory towards other groups or other people, I think that's another matter. But that's not nationalism. That's chauvinism or racism or prejudice. That to me is not nationalism. To me, see, you, you cited that Bill Clinton quote on compromise being what makes America great. What I think makes America great is freedom. And if you can't speak freely without worrying about being stabbed, we don't have freedom. I mean, as I see it. 
800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Arizona. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. Um, I feel like we're veering off of talking about uh, religion preaching violence to say you're, you seem to be saying that any r- fundamental religion, fundamentalist ideas are not good. I think means... I, I think I said the exact opposite of that, actually. Meaning a religion that imposes a whole lifestyle on someone. For example, yeah, that women I, are going to... Again, my, 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 my priority is avoiding violence. You know, again, we don't see as lot, a lot of uh, Hasidic Jewish um, assaulters of, uh, of, of authors. Exactly, but the, but the Hasidic Jews do have a religion which they believe in fundamentally, and and it it has uh, it imposes every aspect of their life is based on their religion. Right. So, what's your point, Eddie? So, there's nothing wrong with that. You seem to have been saying you like start saying about the Hasidim that they're also uh, no. fun, fundamentalist. Eddie, no, I, I said the exact opposite of what you're claiming. I said. We don't have to worry about fundamentalist Christians destroying newspapers or blowing up artists that uh, that make uh, that make, uh, you know, disrespectful artistry of religious icons. I said the exact opposite of what you're claiming that I said. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mike is in Queens. Hello, Mike. Yes, sir. Uh, real quick. Uh, great show since your vacay. You sound recharged, refreshed. Thank so you. My compliments to the chef. Yes. Uh, real quick. My. My caveman view on all this, we keep increasingly try, keep trying to find out why someone did this, why, why, why. I'm just going from the point of a nut jumps on stage and stabs an innocent man, practically kills him right there on the spot. Uh, I think we have to get more of a laser focus of just throwing the bad people in jail and get away from all the armchair psychology and the why, 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 and he wasn't, you know, he was abused when he was a kid or his dog ran away or whatever. Just you just got to throw these nuts in jail real quick. And now he's pleading not guilty, which opens up the door to a whole big thing about he's going to be a media star and they're going to know why he did it. It, it. it looks like to me like it's plain as day the guy did it. So I just wonder how much more are we going to take of not putting these blatantly guilty psychos in jail quickly versus having these uh, th- this uh, talk show creation uh, – thing going on. And it's very annoying. I've never seen anything like it. Anyway, I'll take my answer off the air. Okay. All right. Thanks, Mike. A couple of things based on what you, you said. And uh, three things. Number one, when you say we have to treat this like any garden variety nut that assaults someone. And, and again, I know people listen to the show and I like to do this show so that we could focus on fun issues. And we will. We'll have some fun throughout the course of the show. But I just there are certain things that I think you need to focus on when they occur, even if they are a little bit of a downer coming out of a, a summer weekend. But and this happens to be one. Uh, this is not a garden variety nut. This is not like the, uh, a, a mentally ill person who has stopped taking his medication and assaults someone. In, and the problem with with this situation is that if it wasn't this this man from New Jersey that stabbed Salman Rushdie. There might have been a million others that were willing to do it because it's an ideology, an ideological association with a fundamentalist aspect of Islam. And until we can deal with that, then um, 
all this other stuff about security and uh, uh, bail reform, all that stuff doesn't matter. And just as a procedural issue, the first hearing, uh, usually when there's something like this, even if it's plain as day that a crime was committed, it's always not guilty. They always put in a plea of not guilty initially. Usually what will happen is his lawyer will work out a guilty plea as they negotiate uh, sentencing restrictions. So I don't think this case will ever go to trial. And I certainly don't think this person is going to be a media star. He's not going to be giving, be in a position to give interviews or stuff like that. I would venture to say I'll probably never be free again. But who knows? We'll see. 800-848-9222. Let me squeeze in at least one more here. Uh, our friend Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. Hello, sir. Hey, you know, we've come to a point in society where, unfortunately, you know, we, you can't even go to a sporting event wearing the other team's colors without getting attacked, right? We've just devolved to this point. Um, it's, I can't go to a library, right, without a security guard. I can't go anywhere without a security guard. Why in the world is Salman Rushdie at an event that doesn't have staff security? Like, Lee Zeldin got attacked a few weeks ago. Like, I blame the venue at this point. I mean, yes, it's, I, I would love to live in this utopian world where you should be able to not be attacked by people who think otherwise. But we've come to that point, right? Well, I, I, again, there was, I don't want to take anything away from the state troopers here. The state trooper did subdue this guy within 40 seconds. <laughs> well, maybe he was 20 seconds too far away. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> he should have been drinking coffee outside the venue yeah. or wherever he was. He should have been standing there doing what he was supposed to do. As well, you know, Zelda, you're talking about Zelda now, right? No, no, no. Zelda. I was talking about Salman Rushdie. Okay, but any event, I mean, it's sad that we've come to this point, but you've got to protect people, right? I mean, you can't walk into an elementary school any longer, right? They're going to padlock doors and everything else. You know, you're, a movie theaters have security guys now. We've come to the, We've just come to this point where this is where we're at. It's sad. You know, we're not the best country in the world for this, but it's sad that this is how we got to live, though. Mm. Uh, thank you, Gino. 800-848-9222. Uh, we'll try and squeeze in a couple other calls as well on this, and then we'll uh, move on to some other things. 800-848-9222 on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, next hour, Kim Iverson will be here, and uh, we'll, uh, we will we d- will delve into some lighter subjects. So don't think it's going to be all gloom and doom for the entire four hours of this program. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Hey, big thank you to uh, all of our listeners that came out Friday evening to uh, Deer Park, Long Island, for the event that uh, the president of 
our Long Island division, Frank McKay, put together. It was a great event at a, a venue called The Other Room, and it was my first time there. I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to visiting there again. I met the owners; they seem like great folks. Got to meet a number of great listeners, some who I have spoken to on the phone before, and some who uh, I never have. But uh, Joe from Ronkonkoma came out there. It was great to see him. I uh, got to meet uh, Lynn. She came out there. We got to meet uh, Charlotte. Charlotte came out there. She was great. And then a couple of other listeners that I have met before. Donna in Huntington was out there and uh, Dr. Mason Pimsler and a few other folks as well. My my friend Mike Porcelli, a lot of other great folks that uh, that came out. So it was a great, great event. Thanks to everybody that came. Uh, you know, one of the things I noticed when Frank McKay, who introduced me, spoke the acoustics in that room were not the best. So, and a lot of people were talking and everything. Oh, you know who came out there, made all the, made the trip all the way out there? Jeffrey Gurian came out there. I got to meet the uh, new DA out there in Suffolk, Ray Tierney, and a number of the local elected officials and things. The former Suffolk County executive, Steve Levy, who's a friend of mine, he came out. Uh, a lot of other interesting folks that came out there. So thank you to everybody that came out. Enjoyed meeting everyone. But... Um, I really, as soon as I saw the acoustics and that it was one of those rooms where nobody was listening too closely to whoever was speaking, to whomever was speaking on the mic, I ended up, um, you know, cutting my remarks significantly shorter than the, than I had planned. So uh, I hope everybody had fun, and I certainly did. It was a hike to get out there. It probably took me about two and a half hours, roughly, each way to uh, get out there. On the way back, I my friend Lauren, who lives in Manhattan, she was kind enough to make the trip with me. I was dropping her off in Queens because she lives in Manhattan. She was going to Uber from Queens to where she lives in uh, Manhattan. But um, I was so... I You know, you end up talking and stuff at these events. Oh, Donna from Huntington brought a, a tabletop mini ping pong table, which was really cool. Uh, we we played a couple of uh, volleys of mini ping pong. That was fun. I may have to get one of those, but that was fun. Maybe it might be fun to get one in the studio here. But uh, I w- you end up talking to people. So even though they had free food at the event, I didn't really get to eat or anything. So I uh, was so hungry as I was driving back, and then I see the traffic. So I said to Lauren, do you mind if we stop? Now, at this point, it's 1030 or so, 10, you know, 1030-ish maybe 10, 15, and in that part of Queens, there were not a lot of other places open. So even though I'm trying to do less pizza, because we had pizza that morning, remember, because Friday's pizza day here in the show, the only quick bite that I could find in that area in Maspeth was a a pizzeria. So I end up going to this uh, great little pizza shop out there, and it was uh, really interesting. They, it's, uh, I believe it's called Joe's. They're famous for their sesame crust, uh, sesame seed crust pizza. And they actually have sesame seeds in the in the crust. It was really, really interesting. Uh, Joey's, yeah. Uh, and so I end up making it home. I get home around quarter to 12. Rachel, she stayed home with Carmine Friday night. She had pizza Friday night as well. So I brought leftover pizza from Joey's and Rachel had leftover pizza from having ordered it on Friday night. Keep in mind, I had pizza Friday morning as well. 
So then Saturday comes around, and by the time it comes for us to have lunch, we have all this leftover pizza. So we end up heating up a couple of the slices of leftover pizza. And then we go to this party Saturday night. What was the only menu option at the party? Pizza. So I would say out of one, two, three, four, five meals or four meals in a row, three of them were pizza. So I had uh, pizza coming out my ears. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to go without pizza this week. And again, I wasn't intending. It was just circumstances. I should have I should have thought ahead. I should have brought a yogurt or cottage cheese or something a little more healthy so I didn't have to worry about making that emergency stop in Maspeth and being at the mercy of whatever they happen to have. But it was a great event nonetheless and uh, it was a real treat to be able to meet so many listeners. So you get in the habit of doing the show, you end up talking with all these people that you never speak to and even the folks that call in You never really get to meet them in person. That's why it's always such a treat for me to be able to meet folks in person. I was talking with Frank, and he wants to do a bunch of events like this featuring a lot of different talk show hosts. So he wants to do one with Curtis Lee. I spoke to Curtis about it. He's going to do it, and uh, maybe with uh, some of the other hosts as well. So um, I think they're really building something special out there, out on Long Island. So... Um, big thank you to everybody that came out. It was a really a wonderful, a, a wonderful event. More on that. Oh, Nick Grassy, that young man that calls in from time to time. He came as well. That was nice. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Do you believe in synchronicity? I do. Uh, or I don't know if it's synchronicity or the law of attraction, whereas you put in, you put out to the world thoughts and then you attract back those same thoughts. I'll give you a perfect example. As I was leaving, as I was uh, wrapping up the show on Friday morning, you know, I'm looking at my Twitter feed and then there's different articles that come out and you see, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting. And I see an article about Steve Martin, and I'm going to tell you about it in just a second. But uh, I said, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to put that on my list of things to talk about for uh, for Monday. Got it. Didn't think twice about it. Go through the rest of my Friday morning, and I'm driving home, and I'm flipping through the channels, all my radio presets, and one of the channels happens to be the uh, Howard Stern's channel on Sirius XM. Let me listen to what Howard's talking about. Ends up, he's doing an interview with Seth Meyers. Seth Meyers, the host of the uh, of Late Night with uh, Seth Meyers on NBC. And they end up having a whole fascinating conversation about, of all things, of all people, Steve Martin. And they must be going on about Steve Martin for eight or ten minutes. And I was riveted. I said, wow. That's really interesting stuff. And it was all stuff that I didn't know mostly and stuff. I said, that's interesting. And I just go about the rest of my day. Then later that night, later that afternoon slash evening, when the news comes that uh, Anne Heche has died, 
I see all sorts of articles about how Steve Martin used to date Anne Heche for years before she hooked up with Ellen. And I said, wow, what is it about Steve Martin? So that's Friday. Saturday, I go to this party. Friend of mine is going on and on uh, about this show that I've been meaning to watch for a year now. Uh, all on and on about this show that Steve Martin does with Martin Short called uh, Only Murders in This House. So much so that he insists on coming over and we watch the first episode of this show. That's Saturday. So now all I've got is Steve Martin on the brain uh, going into Sunday. So it's the only things on my brain on Sunday are Salman Rushdie and Steve Martin, right? So I'm thinking all about Steve Martin. Lo and behold, alert pops up in the, I don't know if it was social media or just my calendar, whose birthday was it Sunday? Steve Martin. I said, I can't get away from this guy. So anyway, the initial article which started me on my Steve Martin fixation. Steve Martin has had an incredible career. He has been uh, obviously an incredible actor. He's been a Grammy-winning musician. And I, I think it's clear that his passion for the banjo rivals that of his passion for comedy or acting. But he really got his start as a stand-up comic. And uh, Seth Meyers was telling Howard Stern in that interview that I had read that his uh, book on stand-up comedy, I believe it's called Standing Up, is the best book he's ever read about the craft of stand-up comedy. I can't speak to that because, one, I don't know anything about stand-up comedy, and two, because I have not read the book. But Steve Martin really exploded on the scene with a comedy album, even though he had worked as a writer, I think for the Smothers Brothers in the 60s, he exploded on the scene with a comedy album called Let's Get Small back in 1977, and with the track Excuse Me, helped really establish a national catchphrase. Well, excuse me! (laughs) Now, the next year... He had another very successful comedy album called A Wild and Crazy Guy. We are the Wild and Crazy Guys. (laughs) So um, anyway, why are we talking about Steve Martin? Well, the initial article that sparked my Steve Martin kick this weekend. By the way, uh, a fabulous film, the film that I really enjoyed. I showed it to my wife a few years ago. I thought she was going to like it more than she did. But a fabulous film with Steve Martin in a serious role is The Spanish Prisoner. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really, really well done. And it's really unlike a lot of the other roles you're used to seeing Steve Martin in. I mean, obviously, he's great in The Jerk. He's great in The Man with Two Brains. He's great in Bowfinger. But this was a very different type of role. So Steve Martin, a couple of days ago, told The Hollywood Reporter he plans to scale back on acting after the end of the hit Hulu show only murders in the building that he did come short uh, he did come short of saying that he would retire but he, he said the following when this television show is done 
I'm not going to seek others. I'm not going to seek other movies. I don't want to do cameos. This is, weirdly, it. And even though Steve Martin is a little older, he's 77 years old, I've seen now the first two episodes of this show, Only Murders in the Building, and this is the first two episodes from last year. I haven't seen this year yet. The show is fabulous. I really love everything about it. The acting is great, not only from Steve Martin and Martin Short, but you know who the third major star of this show is? My new favorite person, Selena Gomez, who I came out of the closet uh, of being a fan of last week in my review of A Rainy Day in New York. I didn't. It's not that I come out of the closet. I wasn't keeping it a secret. I didn't know that I was a fan of her. I didn't care about Selena Gomez. I didn't think about Selena Gomez. But... um. I saw her in that picture, and now she's a phenomenal actress. She's great on this show. So I went out and learned more about her. And she is a tremendous advocate for organ donation, which I am, because she was a recipient. She suffers from lupus, and she was a recipient of a kidney from her best friend about five years ago. So she strikes me as an interesting woman herself. But if Steve Martin does indeed hang it up, at, at the end of the day uh, with this Only Murders in the Building series ending. He really will be one of those people in show business that we've talked about that ends at the top of their game. Because the kind of work that Steve Martin is doing now, whether it's this show or the Netflix special that he did with Martin Short or any of a number of other things that he's done – To me, I don't think there's been any degradation in quality from the work that Steve Martin is doing now as compared to the work that he was doing 35 years ago. Why did you kiss my ear? Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. Ah! (laughs) That is he and uh, and the the terrific uh, John Candy in uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. There's so many great Steve Martin films. We can't, we couldn't do justice to Steve Martin and his incredible career by mentioning, uh, by mentioning even, even. A plurality of them, but uh, in it's very difficult to recreate an iconic role. But I think Steve Martin came as close as you can with his interpretation of Inspector Clouseau in Pink Panther. I would like to buy a hamburger. I would like to buy a hamburger. I would like to buy a hamburger. You would like to buy a ham. No, no, no. Let's break it down. I, uh, I, I, would, 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 like, 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 two, 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 two. Bye. 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 
A. A. Hamburger. Hamburger. <laughs> so, uh, if you haven't seen that show, uh, Only Murders in the Building, I do recommend it. I think it's terrific. Again, as much as I can recommend anything after only having seen two episodes. And by the way, the remarks that Steve Martin made to the Hollywood Reporter are similar to what he told Jerry Seinfeld on the show that Jerry does, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, in which he says he's pretty much ready to retire from acting. But uh, here is Steve Martin talking about that show, Only Murders in the Building. You always love, you know, getting a good response to a show. And Marty got the review of his lifetime in the New York Times. And when I read it, I was so proud and also shocked because I was there. <laughs> you know, I went into your trailer when, after you'd read it and you were bleeding in that bag. I remember that. Now, Steve, besides uh, being one of the stars, you also created uh, Only Murders in the Building. How did, the, how did this idea come Well, I out? co-created it with a, a great writer named John Hoffman, and we have some great writers on the show. Mm-hmm. But at, they're initially, not here, so I'm just going to give all the Yeah, they're not here. Right. We need a longer uh, sofa. But uh, I, I just had this thought it's, uh, over 10 years ago, and it was for uh, three older guys who live in a building in New York who just realize they have a, a common interest in solving crime. And but because they're old, they don't want to go outside the building because it's too tiring. So they decide they'll just do only murders in the building. (laughs) So and then, you know, I just kept this an idea in my head for 10 years. And then I was explaining it to Marty one day and he said, you know, we're old. (laughs) And then uh, Selena came along with somebody's brilliant idea. But I will say, I mean, that, that concept that Steve Martin describes to Stephen Colbert there, it sounds interesting, but it really is so much better. Now, if it was Chevy Chase, the third amigo, as the third old guy in that hypothetical series, that would be one thing. But it really is so much better having a younger person there with Selena Gomez because, one, the, the generational chemistry that goes on between the three of them, it's really, it's really perfect. It really makes it a show for all age groups, all ethnicities, all genders. And the last thing I'll say about this, uh, this show is I do think it's very tough to do comedy and mystery at the same time. And this show, again, I've only seen two episodes, but this show really does an incredibly effective job at blending genuine mystery, kind of who, the whodunit nature of mystery, and genuine comedy, because there's a lot of very funny moments in it. In Steve Martin's character in the show is sort of a... Uh, an over-the-hill actor that's best known for playing a TV detective, similar to Kojak. But uh, I do recommend it. So I, um, I, if, I'm not saying that I hope Steve Martin does retire, but after seeing Ric Flair's last match three weeks ago, I have a whole new appreciation for people that call it quits at the top of their game, the way that Johnny Carson did. And don't stick around until they have to be carted out. And uh, I, I think that uh, if Steve Martin does end after this show, he will be exiting at the top of his game. Kim Iverson joins me in just a moment. We're going to talk about free speech. We're going to talk about some of the other issues in the news. And wh- where she disappeared to, how come she's not with the Hill anymore? Very, very 
controversial. We'll get into that and a whole lot more straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, if you want somebody to peek into a window or a door or a room, there's one surefire way to do that. All you have to do is put up a sign that says, do not look in this room. If you put up that sign, there'll be a line of people peeking in to look at absolutely nothing or anything just because of their wonderment. Well, I have to confess, I've always been one of those people that likes to do the peeking into those rooms that say, don't look here. And that's why I have been pretty excited about the rise of independent media that has been enabled by uh, Internet journalism and podcasting and YouTube and things of that nature, at least before YouTube was totally censored. And uh, the person that we're talking to today is somebody that does independent journalism better than anybody. She is one of the most popular news personalities in independent media. She is a populist who has shown an ability to question everything and a willingness to question everything. And one of the things that uh, I was watching with a great deal of interest is that it seemed like one of the best regarded establishment media entities in the entire country, a news publication called The Hill, actually recognized what was happening in this country, what was happening with people like uh, Joe Rogan and others, and said, uh, all right, we're going to tap in to the audience and to the abilities and to the substantial talents of Kim Iverson. Well, that experiment was short-lived. Who is Kim Iverson and why is she no longer on the Hill? Those are a few of the issues that we are going to explore within the next few minutes. I am very, very pleased to be joined by uh, independent political commentator, populist news personality, Kim Iverson. Kim, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Frank, thanks for having me. So uh, I always tr- try to showcase all points of view on this uh, on this show, uh, political personalities, left wing, right wing, no wing, whatever. But I always try to give the audience a, a little bit of a, a perspective as to where folks are coming from. This way, they don't think I'm trying to uh, push a left wing agenda or a right wing agenda without them knowing it. And they can kind of guard themselves against whatever perceived biases a guest might have. Now, just if folks don't don't know where you're coming from or they haven't followed your YouTube channel or the things that you've been doing. Can you give folks a primer on how you describe your own politics, your own ideology? Yeah. So I would say that I, I, I come from the left. Um, I've been a progressive is how I labeled myself. I no longer label, label myself as a progressive because that term has drastically changed. So I would say that I was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016, not as much in 2020, uh, but more so in 2016, really was into the working class, you know, his 
his policies for the working class, helping people, um, really helping Americans achieve that middle class American dream that has been so long gone. You know, it just seems to be kind of dwindling away. And then I would say that uh, over time and just being more doing more research, getting more involved, um, reading more and seeing things more, I shifted further away, I would say, from I don't know. I don't know if the progressive side changed or if I changed. It's one of those debates. Mm. Um, but I no longer, you know, now I'm in the camp where I'm definitely independent. Um, I agree with both sides on different things. I still say I, I still would say I lean left, that I'm more on the left, but an independent leftist that is definitely a populist. So it's, yeah, so I, it's a tough, tough place. I mean, people on the left say I'm a right winger. <laughs> so I get called a right winger from everybody on the left. But then people on the right, when I talk to conservatives, like, for example, I went on Glenn Beck's show. He invited me out to Dallas and um, and, and went to his studio. And I, I was on a couple of the shows that are with The Blaze. And when I sat with the conservatives, they definitely would say that I was not a conservative. Right. Uh, even, that, yeah. That's one of the things that I, uh, maybe I, I has caused me to like you because I feel like I'm maligned from both the, the right and the left for being insufficiently whatever they would like me to be. Uh, so uh, that is uh, certainly something that uh, I think we're, we're kindred spirits on. You know, what's interesting about you is uh, a big part of your career in broadcasting was spent on the FM radio dial and you would do do a lot of standard FM style uh, talk topics for I'm not, you know, being pejorative at all, but kind of lighter talk topics, stuff dealing with relationships and and the things that you might hear on FM talk stations. If you look at the kind of work you're doing now, it is very heavy, very weighty. You're covering, you're slaying every sacred cow that there is, vaccines, the IRS, foreign policy. Can you give folks a little bit of your career trajectory, how you went from being sort of a, a lighthearted FM radio host to being a an internet news personality these days that covers some very heavy topics? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I started in radio, so I'm actually a radio person. Um, who then kind of went into independent media, but I was with several of the large radio companies. Um, I actually was syndicated in the end. I had I was syndicated twice over. Had two different syndicated shows, and yeah, they were very light. I would say they were they were call in radio shows um, that were love and relationships and women women's lifestyle topics, and I would talk about things that women were interested in primarily, even though half my audience was still male. Um, it, it, the target audience was women and people would call in every night. And I did it Monday through Friday for five hours a night and did that for over 10 years. And what would happen is when we were off the air, I would talk politics to my producer in the studio. <laughs> I would just, we would turn off the microphone and mm. when we were in a, in a, in a break, I would suddenly just start talking politics and, uh, Shortly after Trump won the election, this was I left radio actually that December. So Trump won that November in 2016, and I left in that, that December. And I knew I wanted to go into politics. And really, Trump winning was sort of my impetus. I was really upset that Trump won. 
in 2016. I was one of those people where I cried and I was like, oh, no, this is the worst thing. You know, I was really naive and I just, I just really thought, oh, this is the worst thing to ever happen. I gobbled up pretty much mainstream media. I didn't know any better. I was a person who had a job, a different job. I wasn't paying that. I was just reading the headlines like everyone else and tuning into CNN like everybody else. So I, when he won, I thought, okay, now's the time. I got to go talk politics. And it was when I, I started doing independent media. Um, actually, I, I, I kind of got into politics slowly. I didn't start my own show, but I was just learning and kind of working for other companies and doing some writing. And then finally, I decided to launch my own show. But by the time that rolled around, which is about two years later of me just kind of learning more about politics and working for companies, is when I realized, wow, I have... I've changed and I do not fit in anywhere anymore. There's no company I could go work for. I was working for other big companies that were media companies that did politics. And I just started to disagree with them more and more They're on the left, left wing organizations. And the more I started researching, I just didn't agree with them. And I thought, wow, you guys are, you know, completely, you're taking this out of context. You're not, you know, yeah, Trump said this, but you have to listen to the entire thing that he said. And I started just feeling like I was being lied to. And so by the time two years rolled around and I just realized I got to launch my own show, but I really didn't know if I'd have an audience. I just Mm. thought I don't fit in the left or the right anymore. I thought I was on the left. I'm not. I don't know where I fit. So I started my independent channel on YouTube and it took off. I mean, it just turned out I was not alone in my feelings. Oh, no. It took off. Clearly not. So uh, you go out of your way to cover a lot of the issues that either are ignored by the mainstream media or there's one conventional narrative, even on the left-wing, so-called left-wing mainstream media and the so-called right-wing mainstream media. I I think the the issue that you've spent the most amount of attention that, at least recently, that fits this description is the the vaccine issue. When you pick what subjects to cover on your YouTube show, uh, the Kim Iverson show, and people can just search Kim Iverson on YouTube comes right up or just go to KimIverson.com. When you pick what subjects to explore, are you consciously looking for issues that are ignored by the rest of the of the mainstream media or do you just pick issues that you're interested in and then they happen to be ones that tend to be ignored by the rest of the press? Yeah, it's, it's that's what it is. I, I pick the topics I'm interested in because I'm going to do deep dive, lots of research. I'm going to present lots of information to the audience and you can only do that if you're really, truly interested in it. So I have just found that the topics I happen to be interested in and the things that I feel passionately about happen to be the things that are not that covered by the mainstream media. Like during the pandemic, I was from the very beginning of the pandemic, I was very much a a skeptic of the lockdowns. Um, I then became vocally against the vaccine mandate. You know, I, so I was very against the forced forcing people to give up their jobs, stay out of school, forcing people to take the vaccines. That was something that I covered heavily. I've covered things like protests that have been going on around the world, um, uh, the Great Reset theories and and World Economic Forum, the IRS, and, uh, you know, just a lot of the stuff that, uh, as I moved more into this independent populist space over the years, you know, I just really see that the government, I don't feel like it's really, truly working on behalf of the American people. And there's just a lot to expose there. So I just pick the stuff that I find the most compelling the mo- and also just the most important. And I cover it. And it turns out that 
people, again, you know, people feel the same way. They were just waiting for someone else to say, hey, I, I feel the same way about this. Wow, someone's actually saying these things. Yeah, and uh, so because you're so outspoken on so many different issues, I I was somewhat surprised when The Hill, which was a a digital political newspaper and one of the the, the most mainstream of mainstream political news outlets, when they chose to add you to their hit show, The Rising, and then recently you uh, parted company with, with The Hill and with The Rising, wondering if you could tell folks i know you've talked a bit about it but can you tell folks exactly what happened why did you and the hill part company uh well when i started with the hill it was owned by a different company it was actually owned by an individual who then sold it Mm. um, to the company that owns it now and so i was hired by the previous owner and that previous owner really understood the anti-establishment populist rising that's going on in the country and he really embraced that but the ownership quickly transferred to a big corporation and um and and they really in the beginning for a really long time for months because i was there for one year exactly for many many months that company really hadn't they had a hands-off approach they didn't really know what to do with the hill or rising and so they just kind of left it alone and um over time i think there was some thinking that they were kind of wanting to go away from that more anti-establishment populist Mm. sentiment that made the show popular and they wanted to go in a more mainstream direction it's still it's still really unclear but ultimately what happened was i had been covering the pandemic that was my main story i literally brought them millions upon millions of views and when the time came for anthony fauci to be interviewed by the show they left me out of the interview they cut me out they wouldn't allow me to participate in the interview And I had been telling my audience that I brought to Rising for the last year that I was not being censored. I was not being held back. I was not being limited in any way. And the audience was very shocked that I was allowed to cover a lot of the topics that I was covering that that weren't being covered in other mainstream outlets. So when Fauci was to be interviewed and they flat out told me I could not be a part of that interview, I had no choice. I'd been telling the audience for a year I'd been promising them that I was not being censored, Mm. that I was not being limited. And when they did that, I told the company, I said, if you do this, I can no longer say that, which means I then I I would have my reputation would be ruined. I would I would have no choice but to part. I don't I can't stay and continue to tell the audience something's going on here that isn't. So I felt forced, unfortunately, to leave. I didn't have a choice. They I made it clear to them. If they went through with it, what the consequence of that would be, they chose to go through with it anyway. So I'm no longer with the Hill. If if people just tuning in, we're talking with Kim Iverson. You can check her out on the Kim Iverson Show on YouTube and go to KimIverson.com. Why do you think they didn't want you included in that uh, questioning of of Anthony Fauci? It's no secret that you have a a different perspective, but uh, Anthony Fauci is an intelligent guy. He's certainly been at this long enough that he can handle, uh, one would think, a challenging question or two. Did you get the impression that it was Fauci that didn't want to be questioned by you or was it the hill itself that didn't want to put Fauci in that position to answer what I'm assuming would have been a series of challenging questions yeah it's a good question I don't have the answer to that so I'm not sure if they were protecting Fauci because of because the Fauci's team had sort of requested it 
or if they were just afraid to even present me to Fauci, thinking he would back out of the interview. Mm. Mm. But either way, they just they told me I wasn't going to be a part of it. And I was their main. I mean, there's no question at all amongst anybody who watched that show that I was definitely their main host to cut out the main host. You know, my face was front and center on the logo um, out of all of the hosts. And to cut out the main host from an interview like that, you know, the, the person, the one person you could interview during the pandemic and from that being the thing, the, the topic I covered the most on the show for them to cut me out, the audience knew right away. I didn't even have to say anything. I mean, they did go ahead with the interview and in the comment section, the people were very angry. They, they said, that's it. I'm done with the Hill. I don't trust the Hill. And that, that was before they knew the, the behind the scenes of what was going on between myself and the company. Mm. I mean, what a shame. It's really, uh, I'm sorry things worked out that way, not only for you, but for consumers of of journalism and for viewers of that show uh, in particular. While I have you here, Kim, I want to pick your brain on one or two other issues in the news that uh, I've enjoyed hearing your perspective on. First, uh, let me ask you about the Alex Jones situation. Obviously, there was a lot of attention paid to this uh, defamation suit in which the judge ruled that uh, Jones was uh, was in default, and we were sort of denied a proper First Amendment uh, trial because Jones's legal team made some pretty significant errors, which caused the judge to rule against him before they even got to look at the facts of the case. Uh, that being said, uh, the headlines all over the place, and I know there's going to be a series of other trials as well, just had the large judgment against Jones and in favor of the Sandy Hook parents. Are you concerned, irrespective of how you might feel about Alex Jones, are you concerned that this could lead to a chilling effect in terms of broadcasters that want to question conventional narratives about the news? You know, I'm not 100 percent certain if his attorneys made grave mistakes or if they did this on purpose. Mm. And if they did it on purpose and if if that's the route they chose to go down, then I have all I can do is, you know, despite my personal feelings of coverage that Alex Jones may or may not have done. To be honest with you, I've never really watched him. So I actually remain I'm surprised. I'm very neutral to Alex Jones. I don't have a feeling one way or the other about the guy. I don't watch him. So I don't have any sure. idea. I hear what people say about him, but that to me is not enough for me to, to for me to form an opinion. Um, but I will say that if they did this on purpose, move to default, because it's not only this case that went to default, but it's the the one that's coming up also has gone to default. So he's going to have another judgment against him. And again, it will read in the headlines like this judgment was against Alex Jones because of, he did X, Y, Z, and that has nothing to do with it. They never even were able to come to a, you know, liable or not liable because of what he said. You know, that that didn't happen. This was just, well, you didn't turn in the papers on time. And so therefore you're just going to be held liable by default. Um, both of those cases are default. If they continue to default on all of them, then I'll think it was definitely a plan. And if so, then all I can do is thank them, to be honest with you, because that is actually protecting every other independent journalist or really any journalist in general from being sued for sharing their opinions or just questioning, you know, whether or not, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter if what we think Alex Jones is questioning is ridiculous, right? Somebody could question something. You're like, how could you possibly question that? You're so ridiculous. It doesn't matter. The, the whole point is a person should be allowed to question. 
and to say, I don't know if this happened or I don't really believe that happened. We should be allowed to say that about any event or about anything. Even if we look at the person, we roll our eyes and say, oh, my gosh, you're so dumb. It doesn't matter. And so the fact that the I think Alex Jones knows. I mean, I, I would like to think he did this for the greater good of journalism, I suppose. I think he understands that he himself is so disliked that any jury is going to find him liable for mm. anything he says. And that will absolutely impact everybody else in journalism, because suddenly we're all going to be held to that precedent. And it will simply be because the jury was biased against Alex Jones, because the world is biased against him. Maybe rightfully so, whatever. But that's what that's what we know is they they hate him. So him going to default judgment actually protected journalism. So I hope the rest of his judgments go to default as well. In your video uh, talking about the Alex Jones case, you, you talked about the importance of free speech when it comes to questioning narratives, no matter how bizarre that questioning may be. Uh, and you mentioned the specific examples of uh, people who want to question the moon landing, people who want to question whether or not uh, 9-11 was an inside job. How do you balance, and I ask this as much seeking advice as I am, as I ask it because I'm curious about your perspective about it. How do you balance the desire for putting alternative views on your platform or any platform and uh, the, the uh, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call it the risk or the danger of giving people who are saying something that could be blatantly false a broader platform to win converts to a false, uh, a blatantly false narrative? Well, for me, I only talk about something if I have facts to back it up. So when I was questioning the, the reasoning behind vaccine mandates, I had all the data, all the science that showed the vaccines were not stopping the spread. So there was no reason to then force people into taking it if it wasn't going to have the intention, you know, the att- intended outcome. Um, so I try to make sure that whatever it is I'm talking about, that I have actual facts mm. to bring forward. And then we can say, what is the conclusion we want to make with this? Like when we know the IRS is going to hire 87,000 new agents, you know, we can make some logical conclusions based on not just that information, but supplemental information as well. Like we know that wealthy people have plenty of tax attorneys and tax, uh, you know, they have accountants and wealth managers that protect them. And we know that they are not paying their fair share legally. They're legally using the system. So those agents are not going to go after people who are legally, and they've made that clear, legally paying their taxes. They're going to go after the other people who don't have the army of protection that these wealthy people have. So when I just, I just try to connect information, present it to the audience and then say, you know, this seems to be an obvious conclusion based on these sets of facts. But I think as long as you stick to the facts as facts roll out, then, you know, we can discuss things that seem a bit more controversial. But not always. I get banned. You know, I do get banned, even for stating facts. It's uh, so it sounds like on the IRS front, for instance, you're not buying the uh, White House salesmanship of this new legislation that says these 87,000 IRS agents are not going to do anything to go after people that earn less than four hundred thousand dollars. No, I mean, it's all I mean, look, I mean, Senator Mike Crapo from Idaho tried to 
force them to put their put their money where their mouth is by adding an amendment to the legislation saying, okay, then you're not going, you you agree in this legislation that you're not going to go after people who make under $400,000, that we're not going to see higher increase audits, rates of audits on that group. And no Democrat voted for that amendment. So yeah, they're saying something to us, to our faces. But then when it came time to actually put their name on it, they were unwilling to do it. We also know that um, the Democratic, the, this current administration has attempted in numerous ways and done other things in order to get the gig economy to pay more taxes. They tried to go after bank accounts that had more than $600 worth of transactions annually going through them. They wanted the banks to report those transactions. They've now, as of this January, anybody who makes $600 or more through Venmo or Etsy is going to have to report it. I mean, they're, so they've already shown their hand. So they, we've already seen they're going after the people that have a side hustle that are trying to make it through this enormous, unprecedented inflation and skyrocketing housing prices. And they're just going after the people who are just trying to make it. That's what they're doing. They're squeezing us in order to pay for the Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act. You've been very generous with your time. I won't keep you too much longer. I do have to ask you, when you left the Hill, the Daily Beast, they described you in the headline as a conspiracy theorist. Uh, That's a label that a couple of other media outlets have thrown at you. Why do you think you get besmirched with a pejorative term like that? And how do you react when a, a mainstream news publication like the Daily Beast refers to you as a conspiracy theorist? I mean, I just, you know, to me, they, they're they a, a, a tabloid publication. I mean, they're not to be taken seriously, but I realize people do. So there's nothing I can really do about it. But certainly, you know, calling someone a conspiracy theorist is just what you do when you don't have any facts to argue against their points. They call, I mean, think about this. The reason they call me a conspiracy theorist is because I said over and over and over on the hills rising, that the vaccines don't stop the spread. That's all I said over and over and over again. We now know that as fact. That's fact. I think everybody knows this. And yet I'm still labeled by the Daily Beast a conspiracy theorist. I mean, they're a joke at this point. That's do a you, joke. Do you see any hope? I mean, uh, I know you mentioned you were an enthusiastic Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016. Uh, I see so many areas of commonality, both in terms of some specific policy issues like uh, like trade and uh, no more endless foreign wars, but also a general view of uh, of Washington and of uh, the mainstream press. I see so many areas of commonality between populist Trump supporters and populist Sanders supporters. Do you see any possibility that that kind of left-right-center populist coalition could lead to some exciting things either on the political front or the media front in the near future? Well, you know, it's a good question. I don't know politically. I mean, I know a lot of people on the populist left like myself that have become more independent now are very alarmed, you know, by a lot of the persecution that goes on, you know, and a lot of it aimed at Trump. I mean, they're just really going after him for anything they possibly could try to throw at him. So I think that there's a lot of people aligning and saying, I, you know, I'm definitely not going to vote for any Democrats. But 
it's media wise, you know, I think if somebody wanted to make a lot of money, I think if a company out there wanted to make a lot of money, they would be very smart to tap into that populist independent mm. sentiment that's mm. rising. None of them are doing it. I think CNN's learning a hard lesson, though, you know, especially after CNN Plus crashed and burned after 10 days. I think they're starting to realize their viewpoints are actually not popular. They're speaking to a very small group of people. And the independent voices out there, like Joe Rogan, you know, are growing in popularity. And even myself, right, I, my viewership on the Hill, I gained, even on my private YouTube channel, I have more viewers than a lot of the people that are broadcasting on CNN. So at some point, you think that these guys would wake up. But the problem is, is that it's against their interests right. to have the populist anti-establishment rise up. Uh, Kim, it is a real pleasure to talk with you. I hope we could do this again soon. I really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, people could check out the Kim Iverson Show on YouTube or just go to KimIverson.com. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. music we play on this show you can join our facebook group just search on facebook morano radio fans and haters that's m-o-r-a-n-o radio fans and haters i have to warn you this is a tough group that i mean it's not for the faint of heart this facebook group i wish we could get more vocal nice people in there okay so we have this very nice lady, Ellen, who almost every day will provide either a summary of the show or at least detailed thoughts on one particular segment of the show. She's very nice, and she she has great grammar. There's never any spelling errors. There's never any punctuation errors. She's really something, and, and you could tell she kind of gets what we're doing. She gets the show, and... Um, she writes to me the other day, you know, Frank, I don't understand. Whenever I, I put something up there, even if it's totally innocuous and the least political thing in the world, eventually people try to make it about Republicans and Democrats. I don't get it. And I, I didn't really respond. I, I shared her frustration, but I didn't know how to assuage her her, uh, her consternation. So then she comments on something the other day, perfectly relevant to the show, exactly the kind of comment that we – should encourage. And then a former colleague of mine at a different radio station 
Al Gattulo comments on her comment, saying, oh, Ellen, uh, you're, you're too obsessed with Frank. No. I think every co- listener should be as thorough as Ellen is. So that's that's one person. Then I mentioned I ran into Joe and Ron Konkuma at the uh, at the uh, event in Deer Park, which was a lot of fun. And he was a great guy, just as nice in real life as he is uh, on the radio. And he brought his wife and everything. And, uh, you know, it was really just great to have him there. He couldn't stay. I think he had to work. He missed my brief remarks. But he took a picture. The two of us took a picture. Like, I took a picture with anyone that wanted one. Weren't that many people that wanted one. I think maybe only four people. But so be it. I'm just joking. It was a little more than that. But he, he posts a picture of the two of us. And... This one Facebook user who ostensibly listens to this show because he's, you know, in this group. The response to this photo that Joe from Ronkonkoma puts up of the two of us is mean, nice, but you guys need some exercise. Mean. Now, now, who asked you? Who asked you, Ken Powell? Now, first of all, I, I think both of us actually look pretty good in this picture, but I guess you're never your own best critic. And so Joe is very polite at this this incredibly rude ad hominem attack from Ken Powell. He says, dude, I just lost, uh, dude, I lost 35 pounds. We're not all perfect like you, I guess. Now, I thought that was a perfect response. One, I mean, imagine if you're Joe from Ronkonkoma. It's tough to lose weight. And and you lose 35 pounds, and you have to, like, prove yourself to this Facebook troll who we don't even know if that's his real name. And then instead of saying, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to be insulting or anything like that, Ken proceeds to give, I guess, the two of us a lecture and at the same time tell the world how great he is. So this is what he says in response. Joe, I'm far from perfect, and congrats on the improvement. You just got to stay focused, pal. Okay, who asked you? Clearly, whatever he's doing is working. I guess sports, exercise, and then parenthesis, long-distance road cycling, skiing, tennis, baseball, close parenthesis, have always been a focal part of my life. Who cares? No one even knows who you are. Ken, the only reason you anybody's paying attention to what you're writing is because no one can believe that you would be this overtly rude to two people that you've never met. Um, that and the fact I like to eat lots of healthy stuff goes a long way when you put both together. I've never known the bar, fast food, slash other scene. This house keeps me crazy busy. And between that and everything you need to do every day... Throw in Minnie the Wonder Dog, I guess I have an advantage. I mean, uh, if you have any sort of physical advantage, Ken, I think that advantage is completely surrendered when it comes to intellect and manners. That you are at a severe disadvantage of. Um, So the only reason I mention that is if uh, you're thinking of joining the Facebook group. we We want more good people in the Facebook group. Fewer Ken Powell's. More Joes in Ronkonkoma, more Ellens. So just search Morano Radio uh, fans and haters. You took note of that as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the definition really of passive aggressive. Yeah, exactly. He's totally talking about himself like, oh, look at me. I eat healthy. Apparently, you guys yeah. dine out on fast food right, exactly. only is what he's and was saying. Here, I mean, uh, 
even even Chris and the Catskills and Alex don't talk about themselves that much. Yeah, that was a totally like, let me show you what I do because I'm so great and healthy and I'm just so busy. Unlike you fat slobs exactly. that sit around do nothing all day exactly. is what he made it sound like. You know, it's funny that you use the term passive aggressive. O.B. Murray texted me at the same time that you said that. He said, are they being passive aggressive? That's true. Meantime, um, save yourself from being shocked. But uh, Avery had something interesting to say during the commercial break. Avery, uh, you watch this show, uh, the Only Murders in the Building with Steve Martin and Martin Short. Yes, I do. Thanks for the jab on the way in. Hey, please. You've earned that, my friend. <laughs> You've earned that in spades. Um, so give me – so I've only seen two episodes. You're you're all caught up on all two seasons. Yes. And give me your take on this show. Oh, it's a great show. It's um, written well. Steve Martin and Martin Short, are, you know, they do very well in it. But those are two comedic geniuses, so, you you know, you expect that. How about my girl, Selena Gomez, who I've recently discovered? I was talking to Blaze about that. You know, I'm kind of like, you know, like kind of warm on, on her performance in it. I feel like they could get somebody better. But, what? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Well, you're in a better position to judge. You've seen, I've seen two episodes. You've seen 20, I guess, right? So you're in a different position. Yeah. I mean, she, she, she plays the young, you know, hip girl or whatever. I don't think her comedic chops are really there. I, I think she's a good fit with him. Have you seen the show, Matt? No, and I'm like, I gotta go check this out. Yeah, you gotta check I mean, it out. I, I know about it, but I'm like, oh, I gotta I gotta watch this. Yeah. Right on season two. With the yeah. writing though, I mean the writing is so good it carries us. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know what? It's shot really creatively and edited really creatively. Yes. I feel bad it took me this long to um to catch up. All right. Top of the hour. Squeezing a couple of calls, and we got commendations. No more guests for the rest of the show. So if you want to comment on my interview with Kim Iverson, you're welcome to. Other than that, plenty of time for you and I to chat, 800-848-9222. We got a lot of fun stuff to get to for the next two hours, and uh, we're going to get to it as much as we can. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to get to commendations in uh, just a moment. We will take your calls uh, throughout the rest of the hour at 800-848-9222. You can comment on anything we've covered thus far. Uh, but um, before we get to commendations, I was talking about the uh, the event in uh, Deer Park, Long Island on Friday. Uh, one of the people that I referenced who was kind enough to come out there was uh, our friend Joe in Ronkonkoma, who happens to be on the line right now. Hello, Joe. It was great to meet you in person Friday. Uh, the pleasure was all mine, Frank. Number one, you're a gentleman. It was a greatly ran uh, thing. My wife had a blast. She had a few drinks. She was enjoying herself. I met that kid, Matt, from uh, Farming uh, Dale. Uh, Nick, uh, I think, and- is his name. What? Nick, I think. Uh, Nick. And all of a sudden, he started bringing people over. And all these people were shaking my hand because they listened to your radio program and they enjoy my commentaries when I call in. And... I was my wife was getting annoyed because I was getting all this attention. As far as that guy that wrote that comment on the uh, Facebook page, I, I thought I handled it like you said uh, 
proper because I wasn't going to waste my time. Yeah, 100%. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, you're class act. It was a great event, a great event, Frank. And uh, like I said, I had a great time, and you're a great person. And uh, I met Frank McKay, and he was very nice. And it was, I actually ran into a few people that um, are helping with uh, the Lee Zeldin campaign hmm. were there. My wife actually ran into one of her friends that she used to work with that does marketing. So it was a really nice night, and I want to thank you for inviting uh, have a, you know, uh, we had a great time. Great. Well, I'm glad you came, Joe. It was great to meet you in person. And um, I, I don't know. They're going to do another one of these events for Curtis and maybe for some of the other hosts. So uh, I'm going to try and come out there for the future Curtis event. Maybe I'll see you again out there. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, I will get to you. But there are a lot of people that deserve a commendation. Why keep them waiting? Side of Midnight presents Commendations. I must commend the state of Arizona. Now, it's no secret that the United States national government has completely failed when it comes to border security. And this is having all sorts of pro- problematic consequences. Well, you know who's stepping up? The state of Arizona. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. On Friday, issued an executive order to fill gaps in the border wall in Yuma with shipping containers topped with razor wire, saying that the state can't wait any longer. He signed an order that directs the Arizona Department of Emergency and Military Affairs to fill gaps in the border wall in the Yuma sector where there's been a significant increase in migrant encounters in particular. The construction, which began hours later consists of 60 double-stacked shipping containers welded shut and topped with four feet of razor wire. His office said that it's 22 feet tall and weighs nearly 9,000 pounds. Now, look, if you are determined to get into the country, are you still going to be able to get into the country? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think this will go a long way towards making it a little bit more difficult to get into the country. And I think it's great to see border states like Arizona step up when the national government has failed them. So I say good for you, Arizona. Good for you, Doug Ducey. I do commend you. I must also commend Munetka Marakami. Munetaka Marakami, excuse me, became the first player in Japanese pro baseball where they take their baseball very seriously. Big shout-out to the New York Mets, by the way, beating the Phillies this this weekend. They're on fire. Uh, Munetaka Marakami became the first player in Japanese pro baseball to homer in five straight at-bats by going deep his first two times in the uh, Central League leading Swallows 5 nothing win over the Chinichi Dragons. So five straight at-bats to hit a home run? Can you imagine? That's incredible in any country. I want to commend Cole the Deaf Dog, who has been named... The American Humane Hero, uh, who has been named the American Humane Society's Therapy Dog of the Year. Once discarded, a New Jersey deaf pit bull is now one of the most regarded dogs in the nation. Cole, partner of Chris Hanna of Millville, topped the therapy dog division in the 2022 American Humane Hero Dog Awards competition 
after the results of over one million votes cast were announced on Monday. The Belly Rub Lover is one of seven finalists to be celebrated November 11th at the Hero Dog Award Gala in Palm Beach, Florida, where the top dog will be revealed. But we're rooting for this guy. He's a hometown favorite. And the public helps determine the winner. Voting's open from now through September 13th. HeroDogAwards.org. Cole is the lone New Jersey contender. And he's the sentimental favorite. About five years ago, the abandoned pup found himself in a South Jersey regional animal shelter kennel listed with special needs. Hannah, Chris Hannah, a music teacher, didn't see a dog with a disability. Inspired by his nephew, who's also deaf, Hannah saw in Cole countless possibilities. So the pup began to occasionally visit Hannah's classroom. And he started training, and he's been just incredible when it comes to veterans. He's a tremendous comfort to the New Jersey Veterans uh, Memorial Home. And uh, he's the official mascot of the New Jersey Veterans Memorial Home. And he's not just a one-to-one therapy dog. He's also one to everyone. He's sort of a, a model for what dogs can be. Listen to this dog. I want to keep in mind, the dog is deaf. He knows approximately 30 commands in American Sign Language. Imagine that. You can sign a command to this dog and he knows what to do. 30 of them. Uh, dogs are just incredible. Incredible. So I'm rooting for this guy, uh, this dog, to win the Hero Dog Award. Uh, I'm, I want to give a commendation to Jacob Truba, who is the new captain of the New York Rangers. I know nothing about hockey. Nothing about hockey. I, in fact, I, I have to occasionally be reminded that the Rangers are a hockey team and not a soccer team. But uh, to be named the captain of the New York Rangers, this is the first captain they've had since the 2017-2018 uh, season when Ryan McDonough was traded to the Tampa Bay Lightning. I think that says a lot not only about your abilities as a hockey player, but how your colleagues regard you and uh, your leadership abilities. So I'm happy to give a commendation to Drake Jacob Truba, and I am hoping that I am pronouncing his name correctly. If not, well, at least he's still captain of the Rangers, right? Uh, I want to give a commendation as well to Devontae Sanford. This is my kind of a guy. Devontae Sanford was has been, he was 15 when he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in the fatal shootings of four people back in 2007. He didn't commit the murder. He later insisted he was innocent, took a plea deal because he felt helpless and was poorly represented by a lawyer. Now, the case took a strange turn when a hitman stepped forward and said he was responsible for the killings, not Sanford. So a few years ago, the convictions were dropped and he was released. And this gentleman, Devontae Sanford, has led a model life since being released from prison. So the Detroit City Council in March agreed to pay him $7.5 million to settle a, uh, a lawsuit. 
So listen to what Devontae Sanford did last Tuesday. This guy who was in prison for years for some murders that he never committed, a guy that has probably will probably be irreparably damaged from his time in prison, especially at such a young age, a guy who would have every reason in the world to be bitter, selfish, and jaded. He spent his morning on Tuesday giving away free gas at a gas station to women and older men. So he spent $25,000 Tuesday morning buying the gas for women and older men. He said, the city had my back, so it's only right I give back to the city and I give back to the most vulnerable. I love this guy. Love this guy. Wishing him the best of luck. I want to give a commendation to Rick Haley and Jerry Keen. A teacher and recreational caver, Rick Haley, he set out to help map a cave on August 6th. He had no idea that he would end up staging a rescue mission, let alone that is precisely what happened. So Rick Haley, along with a team of around 30 spelunkers, they were mapping a cave in Missouri uh, as part of a project for the Cave Research Foundation. And Haley, who, 66 years old, was involved in logistics and managing problems on the expedition, exited the cave to find another caver and an assistant fire chief from the local fire department. The fire chief tells Haley, glad you're here. You can help us do a dog cave rescue. Another group of parents and children visiting the cave for the day had encountered a dog deep in the cave before flagging Haley for help. So Haley and fellow caver Jerry Keene, both of whom have specialized cave rescue training, had to crawl and squeeze through tight passageways to get to the dog. The dog was in poor shape, according to Haley. She didn't seem to have any injuries, but boy, she was really malnourished. She was skin and bones. She had mud on her. The lost canine was lethargic and reluctant to walk. He placed a blanket in a duffel bag, and she stepped in, allowing them to carefully maneuver her out of the cave. The rescue mission took over an hour. And although their rescue mission training does not cover dog rescues, he explained that a lot of the same principles that you would use for a person you can use for a dog. And uh, once they got the dog out of the cave, her spirits poked up a bit, perked up a bit. So according to Haley, the owner said 13-year-old Abby had been missing since June 9th, meaning she could have been in that cave for almost two months. Now, they don't really know how the dog ended up so far in the cave. Maybe she was chasing an animal like a mouse or a raccoon, and maybe there was flooding in the cave caused by heavy rains, but it's great to see this dog, Abby, reunited with her owner. And uh, a wonderful job by Rick Haley and Jerry Keene for handling this rescue. I want to give a commendation to Brooke Wright of Nashville, Tennessee. Brooke Wright is the king of kings at a competition in Mississippi. Uh, excuse me, in Tennessee. No, 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 Mississippi. I was right. At a competition in Mississippi, Brooke Wright has been named the 2022 Ultimate Elvis Tribute Artist 
as part of the um, annual competition they can they do, he apparently is the best Elvis impersonator or tribute artist in America. I want to commend Nicholas Grassi, great listener to our show. He calls us Nick from Farmingdale. Young man, probably one of our younger listeners. He came to the ball game that we had in Staten Island a couple of weeks ago. Not only did Nick come to the event Friday that we had in Deer Park, brought his grandmother and was really enthusiastic about meeting everybody, but he brought me a functioning transistor radio from the 1960s. A wonderful, you know, piece of radio nostalgia, and it works, and I'm looking forward to using it. I absolutely love this thing. And uh, Nick went out of his way to uh, give this to me, and I really appreciate it. And he said he would actually try to fix another transistor radio that I have from the 70s that fell and hasn't been functioning since then. So I may take him up on that, but I'll at least have this one in the interim. But uh, it's great to meet you again, Nick, and certainly your grandmother. Thank you for coming. Speaking of uh, talented young people, I want to commend Joey Lionetti of Massapequa Coast Little League. They clinched their first ever Little League World Series berth with a 4-0 victory over longtime powerhouse Tom's River, New Jersey East on Friday night when Joey Leonetti struck out nine, hit three batters with pitches, and issued one walk in his six-inning no-hitter. A Little League no-hitter against one of the best Little League teams in the country. No-hitter, Joey Leonetti. Uh, so I'm I'm supporting Massapequa now that uh, they've advanced to the Little League World Series. Good for them. And finally, I must give a commendation to grapes. A new study shows that two cups of grapes per day could help you live longer. Oh, yes. A series of new studies published in the journal Foods suggests that grape consumption may have a significant impact on health and mortality, particularly when added to a high-fat Western diet. This research, which I have to warn everybody, so take it with whatever grain of salt or whatever grain of grape juice you want to take it with, this research was partially funded by the California Grape Commission. It suggests that adding about two cups of grapes per day to a high-fat Western diet led to a decrease in fatty liver disease and a longer lifespan in mice. Since we were talking about fatty liver disease and everything that can do to you on Friday, I thought it would it made sense to do a follow-up on this since it was directly tied to fatty liver disease. All right. Uh, congratulations to all of this week's commendation recipients. If you have comments on anybody that I have commended, you are welcome to give me a... Call 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You're also welcome to comment on any other subject that we've covered thus far. 800-848-9222. Your call's straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano. 
I know there's something going on. 800-848-9222. I'll tell you, I hope you had a nice weekend. One of the things that uh, that I have been doing, uh, is, and I got to tell you, I love this. Is I watch Michael Smirconish's, uh, Michael Smirconish's show on CNN every Saturday morning. And then when 10 a.m. comes around, and I'm not suggesting anyone else do this, but it's working well for me, I disconnect from all electronics. No television, no radio, no mobile phone, no, uh, even if I have to drive somewhere, I keep the radio off. And I do a total digital detox from about 10 a.m. on Saturday till about 10 p.m. And I have to tell you, I. Really like the way it's working out. I am getting a lot of good ideas in this time, not only for stuff on the show, but just stuff to pursue in life. I'm able to get more more chores done. I'm able to make more headway as I go through all the Saturday papers. And it's going really well for me, I have to say. It's not going so well for everybody else, I must say. Because here's what happened. Now... Saturday morning, uh, I, my friend Vinny, his daughter Lena, she's you know teenage girl. She is obsessed with my son Carmine, who is you know eight and a half months old, and she was very eager to spend time with him. She hasn't seen him in a while. She's working over the summer as a camp counselor or something. So I said to Vinny, I texted him Saturday morning. I said, "All right," I said I'm going to be home all day. If you guys want to stop by at any point. You're certainly welcome to. Okay. He, he lives nearby in the neighborhood. And I don't see Vinny. But okay. I figured maybe he got busy or he's got to work or she's got to work. Okay. And lo and behold, I find out later that evening or the next day, actually, Sunday, that he was calling me before he headed over there to make sure that I was home and it was still okay to have people over. And then when he didn't hear from me because my phone was off, he didn't come over. So I can imagine both he and Lena were kind of annoyed. On top of that, Saturday night, my, you know, with this couple that we're friends with, Rich and Danielle, even though it wasn't Danielle's 40th birthday, they were celebrating her 40th birthday Saturday night. And Rich, her husband, was throwing a surprise party for her, even though her birthday was back in February. Is that too much time? I think that's a little too much time. If your birthday's in February, can you have a surprise party in August? I don't think so. I mean, it is certainly surprising, but whatever. So my wife was responsible for getting Danielle, the birthday girl, out of the house. So she lured her out of the house Uh, to take her to go shopping and get their nails done and all sorts of other things. And meantime, Danielle's husband and daughter got the house in shape for the party. Now, my wife had been trying to reach me before the party to tell me that they needed help at the house. So my wife was very frustrated that uh, she couldn't reach me because my phone was off. So you had Vinny frustrated because my phone was off and he couldn't reach me. You had my wife frustrated because my phone was off and she couldn't reach me. So I, I think what we agree, and then we, of course, went to the party. It was a good party, but we had pizza again. 
after having had pizza for lunch and pizza for dinner the night before and pizza for breakfast the day before. So it was a lot of pizza. It was way too much. I'm off pizza now, totally, for at least a while. But um, they, uh, they have convinced me that I should keep my phone on. Don't turn it off. Just keep it on Do Not Disturb so that only certain people can get through if they call. I said to my wife, I said, why didn't you just call our house phone? Because I keep a phone in our office, an old-fashioned phone. It's, it's not quite a rotary phone, but it's in the style of a rotary phone. I said, why didn't you just call the house phone? And she said, well, because it's ringing all day long and it drives me crazy, so I unplugged it on Friday. And I said, well, I think we've both learned a pretty important lesson here, haven't we? And so ultimately you can guess who won that argument. So that's what we're going to do going forward is I will keep my phone on, but I'll just keep it on Do Not Disturb. So that was my Saturday. Oh, um, but I'll I'll tell you more about that later. A lot of people eager to comment on various subjects. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Top of the morning. Um, I'll tell you, Massapequa, I grew up at Oceanside, okay? This Massapequa team, like you said, I just tuned in now when you, when you made the comment. You know, they, they established uh, Massapequa Little League in 1951. So it's the first time in 72 years they made uh, uh, the uh, Little League World Series. Fantastic. And that kid, uh, Leonetti, uh, wow. You know, to do that, to pitch a no-hitter against powerhouse Tom's River, uh, fantastic. And I got to mention this too, Frank. <clears throat> I went to school in Rockville Center. The last team from Long Island to make the Little League World Series is 1978 team from uh, Rockville Center. So, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I was a diamond rat in the dirt every day. I played at Massapequa and this and that. But that whole town, the whole, you know, state of New York really is going crazy for Massapequa. And I hope they have the mojo, you know, to continue on. And speaking of mojo, Frank, uh, you know, let's see what happens with our Mets. You know, I'm not stopping now. Oh, please. They look great. This is the, this might be the best yeah. Met team of all time. Definitely. And, you know, I was at, I was at the 69 World Series, the last game. Uh, I was at uh, the game with Pete Rose, Bud Harrison fight and uh, some really classy games. And I'll tell you, um, n- nothing like New York baseball. And let's see what happens with the pinstripers. They were playing what? 730 ball. Uh, the first half of the season, and it's nothing like New York baseball. That's for sure. Uh, Another thing, Frank, if I was in Long Island, I would have gone to uh, Deer Park to say hello, you know? All right. Well, I would have been happy to see you, Mike, but uh, since neither of those things uh, occurred, then, um, um, you know, we'll just move on. We'll play the cards we're dealt. Mike, uh, great call. Thanks for for reaching out. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Phil is in Montclair. Hello, Phil. No, Bill. Bill. I, I stand corrected. Yeah, I'm sorry. You were Avery. Yeah, yeah, Frank. A while ago, I called you about letting all these people in on the border and 40,000 vets are homeless and uh, about 20 of them committing suicide daily. Uh, something had to be done. You agreed. So who steps up? Mr. Fisher and Mr. John Casamatidis are going to try to house all of them. God bless them. Okay, that was that. 
Then, and I, by the way, I followed every sport since 1951. I, a little boy, I saw Bobby Thompson's home run. Can name you the six original goalies. Hockey is a great sport. Uh, most people don't follow it, but it's better than you think. Uh, anyway, uh, so I discussed that. That was so. Now, tonight, uh, patting on the back, Mr. Larry David. And I thought Larry David, a funny guy, a great guy. Then uh, I listen to a lot of radio all the time, a lot of radio, watch a lot of TV. Uh, started with nothing, retired from Wall Street at 53 a long time ago. Uh, anyway, Larry David, good guy. You said good guy. Larry David was on recently. Was on, uh, yeah, Alan Dershowitz was on recently, who was friends with Larry David. And and that's what's wrong with the country. This and and by Peter King, uh, Bob Dole's these were, these were bipartisan people, and bipartisanship is great. Anyway, Larry David, uh, right? He told, snubbed uh, Alan, uh, Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz in in, in uh, at Martha's Vineyard. Not right, right. No, 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 no. Alan Dershowitz put his arm around Mike Pompeo, who was number one at West Point, top five percent at Harvard Law School. He had been in Alan's class. I mean, I mean, uh, he had been in Dershowitz's class, and Larry David said, we were friends, we're not friends anymore, and Mike Pompeo was a wonderful man. First in his class at West Point, top 5% Harvard Law School. He just knew him from Harvard, and he said, uh, he said, Alan, we're never talking again because you put your arm. So don't tell me about Larry David. Well, uh, Bill, I don't, I don't remember. on the left, Bill, for God's sake. Bill, I don't remember saying that Larry David was a good guy. What I said was. No, 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 you didn't. But you mentioned. Okay, but you well, mentioned Larry. And I'm just telling you he's not a good guy. All right, guy. well, okay. I'm not, I'm not here endorsing Larry David's character. Uh, all I said was I thought I gave Larry David some credit for doing those fatwa episodes and doing a fatwa arc, a Salman Rushdie-themed arc, on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think given the propensity that some militant Islamists have for blowing up people that may mock certain aspects of Islamic culture, to do a whole musical about Salman Rushdie where you're making fun of the Ayatollah of Iran, the the supreme leader of Iran, I thought I gave him some – one, I thought it was very funny. Two, I gave him some credit for, you know, a lot of people would have been worried about getting blown up. So I, I, I don't know Larry David, but uh, I think he's probably pretty similar to how he is on that show. That's what I've heard from people that do know him. You know who might come on the show this week? Um, Kenny Kramer. The basis for the real life Kramer, who lived across the hall from Larry David for years. And that's who Larry David based the character of Kramer on. So if uh, Kenny comes on this week, we'll ask him. Kenny listens to this show from time to time. So if Kenny happens to be listening now, you're certainly welcome to call in. 800-848-9222. Dan is in Rigo Park. Hello, Dan. Thanks. Uh, your listeners would like to know that uh, Rush Limbaugh was a big fan of Representative Tra Traficant. As a matter of fact, before uh, Traficant was jailed, I heard Rush say on the radio, he should be, be a Republican. All right. Thanks, Dan. You know, what, you know what I find interesting about Dan's comment? <clears throat> so Dan had a comment about Jim Traficant, right? <laughs> 
on the call screener board, it says that Dan's comment was about traffic cams, right? So I'm here preparing myself for for an intelligent discussion or a joke or a retort or a question about traffic cameras. And yet the question, the comment was about Congressman trafficking. So be it. That's why, that's why this show is so great. You don't know what to expect. I don't even know what to expect. It sounded like you said traffic cams, even when he was talking. No, but, but until, until he said, until he said, until traffic cams was jailed, even when he said Rush Limbaugh was a big fan of, it sounded like he said traffic cams. No, but but did didn't either of you? I mean, it's fine if you didn't. I, I'll take calls on whatever. But didn't one of you say why is this guy calling about traffic cameras when Frank hasn't said anything about traffic cameras? Listen, we get all types here. All I the bet time. you do. I <laughs> bet they, they you do. They want to talk about whatever they want to talk about. I bet you do. That's what I'm saying. You're not here on the other side of that phone. Fair enough. Fair enough. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight. 9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Um, I actually spoke with Curtis uh, earlier regarding Salman Rushdie. And this poor man, he had a fatwa against him like 10 years ago. Maybe it was even longer ago than that. Well, as as I said at the beginning of the show, Carol, it's from 1989. Yeah, yeah, right. And they finally got to him. And, you know, I feel bad for him because they said he might lose an eye or sight in one eye or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, not to repeat everything that I just said, Carol, but I feel terrible for him as well. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. It says that Neil in Staten Island wants to talk about Mayor Adams and the immigrants who knows what Neil actually said he wants to talk about? We'll see. Uh, but um, for all I know, he could want to talk about Cape May or, you know, you know uh, something else here. We'll see. Um, Neil, hello. Hey, Frank. You know, I did want to talk about Mayor Adams, but. Oh, boy. Your, last, your, your previous caller really set me off, Frank. When you said he was, Larry David was talking about you know, the, the, the thing with the fatwa. Nobody mentions when he did the uh, show where he took the shoes of his the girl, he, the woman he's dating. It was her dead grandfather who was killed in the camps, and he went through the shoes there to take a pair of shoes because he needed a pair of shoes. I was so sick to my stomach to think that he would, as a Jew, that he would do something like that. I found not only no humor in it, but the, the clothing that the Nazis took and everything from the people— and to to do that, it, it made me sick to my stomach. And, and again, uh, you know, I, I had really no desire or interest to do a whole segment analyzing everything Larry David's ever done. But I think the big difference between um, fundamentalist Judaism and fundamentalist Islam is that there were not a lot of uh, fundamentalist Jews that were trying to kill Larry David because of that. No, no, no. I, I understand. I'm just saying that episode. Yeah. Really so again, so like, who cares? I mean, so don't watch it. That's if you don't like Larry David, don't watch him. My, my point is about militant Islam more broadly, not everything Larry David's ever done. I mean, we, you want to go down the list? You know, 
There was also an episode where um, they they urinated on a photo of Jesus or a, a picture of Jesus. A lot of Christians were unhappy with that. Bill Donahue of the Catholic League urged an HBO boycott because of that. So, again, there were no no Catholics trying to blow Larry David up because of that. That's sort of the, the difference between militant Islam and other fundamentalist adherents to other religions. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. Howard Coso. Take it away, Frank Morano. I'll be back in 60 seconds. Frank, I'm glad you brought up sports, you know. And uh, before I get to the thing I want to talk about, um, I want to congratulate Massapequa. Uh, Joey Leonetti pitched a great game. Yes. And uh, let me tell you, this is part of our audience now, Massapequa, and those kids are having a fun time. They'll be going out to the Little League World Series. And Tom's River, they played, they beat Tom's River, but Tom's River played a good game. And let's congratulate them, too. I know they might be big disappointed, but for those kids, there'll be more games to come. And uh, I'm just glad you brought that up. And also, Frank, have you thought about opening a team, a Met team store or something with T-shirts and jerseys and cash in on this big run that you're going to have for the next two or three months? Well, I, some, I'm not interested in selling on uh, official, you know, Mets, uh, pro, you know, merchandise. And I don't care to go through the, the process or the rigmarole of selling unofficial Mets merchandise. So uh, I'll stick with uh, just cheering from my uh, from from my sofa. Yeah, but you, like in three months, you could become a millionaire if you do it right. Really? Just bring in your partner there, uh, the big cat. That's all. Set it up. You don't have to be there. Just come there and open, cut the ribbon, uh, and that's it. Everybody all right. That's there. an idea, Steve. I'll look into that. All right. And just for the rest of the country out there, I just want to let them know, first of all, I mean, you're like a combination of Bob Grant, Joe Franklin, and everything. But you know something? Before I get to the meat and potatoes, you're becoming more like Bob Grant. You know that because you go on trips with the audience. Bob did that. You go to banquets with the audience and everything. I mean, I, I couldn't picture like Joe Franklin taking the you know the listeners to the Hokey Finokies or something. But I just want to say something to the national audience, everyone listening. You bring up the New York City school system. It could be confusing for people. Oh, we need to bring in a new chancellor and this and that. Listen, folks, the country you're listening, there's nothing wrong with the New York City school system that a million new students couldn't fix plus a few thousand new teachers. Because you see what they're teaching them now, and a lot of these kids don't want to be educated. They get out of hand, and it's just it's a crazy scenario for kids who are in there who are trying to learn. The, the, the country should know this. Thank you, Steve. 800-848-9222. David is in Rockland County. Yeah, I'd like to – sometimes you, you start the segment with a clip from a certain TV show, a question before your race is born. Where, 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 which uh, TV show is that from? That's from Star Trek. That's from one of the most famous Star Trek episodes of all time, City right. on the Edge of Forever. That's the voice of the Guardian of Forever. Right. And um, you, you ever heard of the show Independence Day from 1996, where well, there was the, there was a yeah the film uh, yes. where, where where they had to where they had a war between the aliens? And yes, then, yeah, I've talked about it before. Absolutely, right. So that's I guess that's a similar. That was more about the, that, but that that's more like a reference to Abraham Lincoln. I, that's what I that's how I interpreted it. Well, what's more of a reference to Abraham Lincoln? No, that the president, I think the president in Independence Day is referring to Abraham Lincoln. When he does what? 
No, this whole, his whole, um, no, like, he'll be talking about any president, you know, so that's, so that was the president that I wanted it to be, you know. All right. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. I don't know that there's additional comment from me necessary. John is in Brooklyn, been holding a while. Hello, John. If Molly was still with your call screen, I, I would have been spoken to you much earlier because what I have to say is very important, and your present call screener didn't appreciate it. Uh, first, I agree with me, you. First, let me note that uh, I've spoken to Salman Rushdie a few times. I found him to be most pleasant and thoughtful, and I'm absolutely, like you, stunned with what happened on Friday. Um but it's unfortunately predictable because there is a famous Muslim intellectual, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who had a career in the Netherlands as a politician. She was eventually forced out by Islamists, and she fled for her safety here in the United States. And she's one of the leaders in what you could call an Islamic Reformation movement. Uh, She's been among the most active voices noting that Islam needs as much of reformation as what occurred in Protestant Christianity. Yeah, I'm familiar with her work, and uh, I I completely agree with her. And uh, I think that um, voices like hers need to be amplified now more than ever. Great point, uh, John. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Ralph is in New Jersey. Hello, Ralph. Okay, uh, I would like to give commendation to Kim Iverson, and uh, like you, I'm quite familiar about the YouTube channel that uh, she had, and uh, she's a real stand-up uh, lady, and the interview, you, you know, was magnificent, was uh, marvelous, and so that deserves a round of applause, a standing ovation, a chorus, and a commendation. Now, uh, Frankie, let me uh, also say this. Thank you for staying out of mentioning China or uh, the origin of the virus in that interview, because those are probably uncharted territory for you. It's not for me. And, you know, this, uh, if no one understood the, the ethnic background of Kim Iverson, I think in the YouTube channel, she identified herself as an Asian American, if I'm not yeah, she's, uh Her family's from Vietnam. Okay. So... You know, was there a reason why you did not bring up the issue of the origin of the virus or China in that interview? Wait, the origin of origin of the what? The, the virus. The, the virus. virus. Oh well, I mean, and, because there's only there's only so much time that we, you know we can you know we can delve into all these issues. But she'll come back. We'll do it in the future. Ralph, thank you for the call and the compliment. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. And if you want to comment, we have eight open lines. Now's the time to do so. 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you want to comment on anything that we are discussing, 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, there's one story that I uh, wanted to bring to your attention. In the Daily Mail, and I'm going to link to this on uh, my Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. You can read it for yourself. That's uh, facebook.com slash M-O-R. A&O fam, um, this was, uh, you know, I, I know this is a publication that that uh, publishes a lot of stories like this in an attempt to get clicks, but it is interesting nonetheless. Reveal, this is the headline in the Daily Mail, revealed after 32 years, the most spectacular UFO photo ever captured or... The first glimpse of America's fabled top-secret Aurora spy plane program. In August of 1990, two young chefs photographed what they thought was a UFO while walking in Scotland, and then they took the pictures to a newspaper. The paper passed them on to the Ministry of Defense. Then the photographs vanished along with the two young chefs. Now, after 32 years, the photograph is revealed. And despite the Ministry of Defense and the National Archives doing their utmost to keep it hidden until 2076 because of privacy concerns, think about that. They wanted this hidden for another 54 years. Retired Royal Air Force officer Craig Lindsay, now 83, broke protocol and kept a copy of one of the pictures inside his copy of Great Aircraft of the World in his desk. But in this picture, no one is really quite sure if it's the first glimpse of, you know, America's top secret Aurora spy plane program, or if this is something that's extraterrestrial. So I've just linked to it on my Facebook page. You can see for yourself, facebook.com slash Morano fan. You see, since the 80s, there have been rumors of a silent, supersonic, geometrically shaped craft used for spy missions. And some people speculate that this is exactly what we're seeing here. There have never been substantial evidence that it was ever built or flown, but there's been a lot of unexplained sightings and incidents in both the United States and the U.K. that fueled this myth. So I've just linked to it. You can see the photograph for yourself and uh, weigh in as to what you think it is. Meantime, I don't know how, uh, you know, I mean, if Craig Lindsay is, has too much of a Scottish brogue. Is it a brogue if it's Scottish or it's just Irish? Well, I don't know if he has too much of a Scottish accent to be intelligible on the radio, but I've just put him on the list of people that I'd like to have on this program, and uh, I'm going to try and reach out to him to see if he can talk about why he chose to squirrel away this photograph. And you really have to wonder what happened to these chefs 
because we've been hearing about these photo, this photo for a long time and the story. But folks are saying that this could be the most spectacular UFO photograph ever captured. And the holy grail in terms of hard evidence that these things really exist. And to me, it's very interesting. One way or the other, we don't know what this is, but, well, at least I don't. It's very interesting that the Ministry of Defense wanted to keep this secret until 2076. Why? Why? What happened to the file? What The men who pictured the UFO and how and why... Its very existence has been suppressed for 32 years. This was quite a puzzle. And so uh, who knows? Maybe we'll get this uh, this retired Air Force officer on the show. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Ina is in Manhattan. Hello, Ina. Hello, Frank. How are you? How was your vacation? I'm great. It's great to talk with you. It, it was It was wonderful. Thank you. Yes. I was calling to my phone and then it 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 just ring you, so, but then I find out that you was um talking about UFO, but you know what I have such suggestion if you want to find out more about UFO, if you put out the uh, more about what um, Ina UFO what oh, you're oh, talking okay. about Got it. yes the best place to to find out what's going on. Is retired um, flight attendants and and the, the the captains for the the what do you call it the flight the people that fly the plane right pilots because they see a lot of stuff in the sky but they are not allowed to talk about it but if they retire maybe they would come on and tell you because there's a lot of stuff. They see, but they're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. Well, that's a great point, Ina. We've heard from a few of them. And I think to your point, the stigma about coming forward with this stuff, and I appreciate the call, it's all the more reason why it's important that the House adopt Congressman Mike Gallagher's UFO whistleblower protection bill. Because there's no reason that people that work in aviation or work in the military should have to be concerned about about their job or their reputation just because they want to report that they've seen something. We want to encourage people to come forward with sightings, right? Whatever these sightings tend to uh, turn out to be. 800-848-9222. Paul is in New Jersey. Hello, Paul. Hi, Frank. <clears throat> I've uh, I've watched your sh- I've listened to your show almost every night. Uh, uh, it seems my like sympathy because I don't sleep very much. <laughs> But I was just wondering, did anybody ever win the $1,000 minute? Yes. I've only seen – oh, really? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, we've, had, we've had so far two winners, and it's funny. It, we went for a while without having anybody win, and then one person won. It was a big deal. Everyone was excited. And then something like three or four days later, maybe a week later, another person won. You had to see how, oh, how nuts management went. That they that we had two winners, one right after the other. They said, "Oh, you got to make the questions more more difficult." You know, they thought we were going to be doing this every week because it was so it, it was so unusual to have two winners back to back. But uh, it is tough. But it, as those two winners proved, it is certainly not impossible. Yeah. Okay, it's good to know. I just it seems like it goes from. Uh 
from stop to full throttle. Uh, you know, it's some of the questions like, you know, is there more light during day or night, true or false, or whatever? And then next thing it goes to, uh, you know, who is the Secretary of Labor under, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin? Well, right. I mean, had Benjamin Franklin been president, that would be a question we might ask. Hey, Paul, thanks. Thanks. We'll play the $1,000 Minute coming up in about a half hour if you want to try your hand at it. Uh, until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. And uh, much more so than being a uh, broadcaster, there's one thing that really defines my relationship with radio. That is, talk radio specifically, that is being a fan. Um, since I was eight years old, I have been a fanatical fan of the medium of talk radio. As far as I'm concerned, there is no better way to convey information and entertainment. To me, this is where it's at. I love this. I love this. So I have had so many talk radio hosts that I've so enjoyed listening to over the years. Last hour, Steve mentioned Bob Grant. He mentioned Joe Franklin. Joe, I th- I think w- it's a little unfair to just call him a talk radio host because he was definitely a talk TV host, and he did do um, a form of talk radio. But a lot of the a lot of the radio that he ended up doing was kind of music oriented. Certainly, very different from the kind of talk radio that Bob Grant did. But I have listened to and admired so many different talk talents over the years. People like Malachi McCourt, people like Jay Diamond, Richard Bay, Alex Bennett, uh, Curtis Sliwa, Curtis and Kuby, John Gambling, Barry Farber, and a uh, number of others. Rush Limbaugh, uh, Tom Likas, I think I may have already mentioned. A, no- a little bit later, Doug McIntyre. Many, many different. Uh, hosts over the years, Lionel, Mark Simone. And one of the people that I have most enjoyed listening to over the years has been Howard Stern. And uh, Howard's on uh, Sirius XM. Now he's off for summer, so I'm not worried about sending any listeners over to, uh, to you know, to his show. You should keep, keep listening to this station where, where it's at. Not even going to be on the air today. But to me, Howard's ability regardless of what you might think of him or some of the things that he does or some of the topics that he 
covers, and he's changed a lot over the years, and there's a lot of opinions about whether that's for the better, for better or worse. But bottom line is, if you're not the same person today that you were 40 years ago, are you? Right? I'm guessing not. And um, I think Howard is not either. But the difference with Howard Stern is people have gotten to observe that transition of him being one person to another in real time, whereas most people don't get to do that evolution in the public eye. Anyway, um, Howard Stern, to me, is a strong candidate for the greatest talk talent ever, ever. And his ability to pick topics that will resonate with the audience, his ability to do an interview, his ability to tell a story, as far as I'm concerned, they're better than anybody that's ever done this. And as a fan of the Howard Stern Show, you cannot have paid any attention to that show over the course of the last four decades without being familiar with somebody that became a character on the show. And he didn't just become a character on the show. He became a focal point of the show's direction, and it became a breeding ground for some of the most entertaining and substantive at times radio that was ever covered on that show. And that is Ben Stern, Howard's father, Ben Stern. Now, if you're not a Howard Stern Show listener, um, a lot of people have done this with family members. I used to have my mother call in uh, to the to, to my radio programs from time to time, and my grandmother. Um, uh, Sid Rosenberg has his mother call in all the time. You, you, uh, Imus used to have his brother Fred call in. Howard's father was a phenomenal radio character. Now, in part, it was because his father was very intelligent, in part because his father was very funny, and in part because Howard turned his father into a caricature of himself, basically like a cinematic version of a person that, that we could all relate to. On, the, on one level, he was everybody's father, disapproving, stern, pardon the pun, and always telling his son that he was not as good as he should be. And on the other hand, Howard turned him into such a cartoon character that you couldn't help but laugh at him. Well, we learned a day or two ago that Howard's father, Ben, has passed away at the age of 99. Uh, Howard did an interview with a media outlet in the Hamptons, Dan's Papers, uh, that he did not provide any details about his father's passing, but um, he uh, did say that he is working on a special project in honor of his father, his late father. So Ben was a radio engineer for many years. It's in part what led to Howard's affiliation with radio and his fondness for radio. And Ben was a huge radio listener, would listen to this station constantly. I remember he would actually call Curtis on the radio as well. 
And I remember one time, and this was all very jocular and fun, Howard actually threatened to shoot Curtis if he kept putting his father on the radio. Now, he was just joking around, but um, that's the level of fandom that Ben Stern had for this radio station and for some of the talents on it. And it's easy to overlook Ben as a smart guy, meaning it's easy to think of him not as a smart guy because Howard would occasionally portray him as this Mr. Magoo-type figure who was just uh, kind of out to lunch. That really wasn't the case. Uh, Ben, I remember when, in 1998, 24 years ago, Chuck Schumer is running for U.S. Senate against Al D'Amato. And Howard was for Al D'Amato. And uh, Howard couldn't make a persuasive enough case on the radio as to why voters should vote for D'Amato over Schumer. So he said, you got to get my father on because I was talking to him over the weekend and he has such a, a, a textbook case for voting for D'Amato. You feel like you're an idiot if you don't vote for D'Amato. And sure enough, he got his father on, and his father made a very compelling case for voting for D'Amato. And this has nothing to do with D'Amato or Schumer. It's just how intelligent and how skilled a guy Ben was. And so he worked as a radio engineer for a long time and eventually was able to become um, the owner and operator of a recording studio where they would record commercials, where they would record cartoons. And Howard really enjoyed going to the radio station or the recording studio with his father for a couple of reasons. One, he got to see behind the curtain of this magical, mystical world. And I never never spoke to Howard, never spoke to Ben, I don't believe. Um, But the other thing that Howard really enjoyed is his father, like a lot of fathers, particularly in that era, was a very a big shot at home. You know, you you know the concept of a man cave that they have in the 21st century. In the 60s they had a man cave as well. Do you know what they would call the fathers would call a man cave in the 60s? They would call it the house. Everything was the man cave. So Ben was very much in charge of his household. His Howard's mother Ray would greet Ben every day when he came home. With a Tom Collins. I mean, is that the most textbook 1950s, 1960s relationship that you can imagine? So, meanwhile, when you own a recording studio, you have to service all of the clients. So Howard got to see his father acting just like a regular schnook working hard to order sandwiches for the clients that were coming in to record. And then he got to hear his father complain on the way home about, oh, you think they order a shrimp salad at home? You think if I wasn't paying for a shrimp salad, they would order a shrimp salad? So Ben Stern, up until the last couple of years when his health has been declining, has been an incredible, not only New York radio character, but an incredible national radio character for a long time. And he, his calls to his son's radio program were, to me, just the stuff of legend. Hi, Dad. How you doing? Okay, I'm just listening to your show. Yes. I I think you were about 18 years old when I made that tape. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 
My father was, you see, but I never felt he didn't love me or something. You know, I never did. I never Listen, felt that. I felt all you try to do is keep pulling my chain all the time. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't. I was having fun. Were. I was a kid. No, but you, you always had ways of saying things that you knew you can set me off. But wait a minute. Let me ask you something. Because listening to the tape, you notice that you don't compliment Howard when he does anything right. What was that a compliment? Oh, gee, don't yell at me. Oh, I answered as good as Alan did. You're goofing around all the time. But he no. answered a couple of questions legitimately. When you're five years old, you see, but this is what, you see my father, no, let me take, no, this is what happened to my father. My father was raised by a father who behaved like this. And my father decided that that's the kind of father he would be. So to say, like that, my, my kids are goofing around. I get into it. I goof around with them. Let them, you know, I let them have some fun. I got to say something to my defense. Go ahead. When I do something of a serious nature, I expect you to be serious. But, when I, when but I was came, this a day of fun or was this work? It was supposed was, to be. No, it was, it was to do something correct. <laughs> no, it was a day of fun. We were at your studio. When I, when I took movies of you in your room with, with that Jerry Mahoney, mm -hmm. I said to you, let's, let's do it. <laughs> what you ended up doing, falling on your head on the floor. Right. And doing all kinds of crazy things. And I said to you, listen, let's do this correctly. So what are they talking about there? What they're talking about is they had unearthed this tape of a five or a six-year-old Howard Stern um, doing a recording with his sister and his father is essentially interviewing his two children. Now, Ellen, Howard's sister Ellen, is a little older, so she was a little bit more mature in her responses. And needless to say, when they rediscovered this tape, it gets played constantly, constantly. And this really kind of came to define Ben and his relationship with young Howard. Me at the age of seven, I went to my dad's recording studio, and this is where he told me, uh, among numerous times, that I was a moron. <laughs> Do you feel that the United States should remain in the United Nations as a member of the United Nations? Howard? Yes, I really do. Uh, is there any sp special reason why you feel that they should? Well, there should be peace in all the countries, and we wouldn't have want any war. Because we don't want the anymore. <laughs> I told you not to be stupid, you moron. <laughs> <laughs> and that became a drop that was played all the time. Um, 800-848-9222 if you have a Ben Stern memory. Now, for a lot of people, Ben came to be known not for his radio appearances and not for the old clips that Howard would play, but for the cinematic portrayal of Ben Stern in the film Private Parts. So Private Parts was a it was a it was a, a, a film that uh, was largely based on Howard's life. And in that film, Richard Portnow, who's a terrific actor, he's been in everything from Kindergarten Cop. He's been on Seinfeld, Good Morning Vietnam, The Sopranos, where he plays uh, Mel Voigne. Uh, he plays Howard's father, Ben Stern, in the film Private Parts. Now, here he is working with a radio talent by the name of Symphony Sid. And here, uh, Howard, who plays himself in the film, is narrating, watching his father interact with one of these big on-air talents at the time. The music for the people, it doesn't Symphony matter. Symphony Sid, by the powers vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission, I command you to get on the microphone in a serious manner and continue this broadcast. Now, the thing that's so funny about Ben Stern is not the cinematic portrayal. It's not the clips of seven-year-old Howard. 
it's not the live clips, the, uh, the live appearances that Ben would do talking about U.S. Senate races or anything like that. That was all fun. That was all funny. But to me, there's one thing that Howard Stern could do every single time, and I will laugh uh, into the point of being in pain every single time. And that is when he impersonates his parents, especially his father, as he continued to do later in life, even when his parents were getting a little long in the tooth. And, for instance, this impersonation of his father using a hearing aid. This went on for a year. And then I finally, I went to to him and, and yelled at him and said, you have to yell at him, even if you're talking normally. And I said, just go try the hearing aid. He tried it. Now he loves it. You know? Yeah, I don't know why he couldn't just try it without you yelling at him. Who's that? <laughs> it's Robin. Robin. I told him it was you. It's Robin. Who? Robin. Who? <laughs> Robin. Robin. Go with Howard. Yes. Talking about the hearing aid. Who got laid? Oh, my. Hearing aid. <laughs> I thought the new hearing aid worked. No, they we're, we're back in time when oh, the hearing oh, aid didn't oh. work. <laughs> I was like, oh, yes. The, oh, the hearing aid, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find him uh, absolutely hysterical. So uh, my condolences to uh, the Stern family on Ben's passing. But I'll tell you, not a bad deal. To be able to make it to 99 years of age, a lot of people don't get to make it that far, and not a bad deal to be able to make a living in radio. A lot of people don't get to, aren't lucky enough to be able to make a living in radio, and not a bad deal to see your son become the greatest radio star of all time. And to do all three of those things in one lifetime, that's pretty extraordinary. If you want to comment, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. Two two. Let me say hello to Peter in the Bronx. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank. How are you? Right. Um, actually, I had calls about something else, but it's funny that you talked about Howard Stern and his parents because I used to work in a restaurant back in the '80s, and Howard Stern's parents would come in almost weekly. Uh, and uh, his father was always quiet. His mother was very talkative to the waitresses and the busboys. I was a busboy there, but the, his father would very rarely speak. Um, and, you know, we all become our parents over time. I'm, you know, I'm sure it happened to you. I remember growing up, I, I would get yelled to turn the radio down. And then when my kids were growing up, I, I was yelling at them to turn the radio down. And I'm sure one day you're going to be yelling at your kids to turn the radio down. You know, so we all become our parents. So Howard has changed over the and he became his parents. You know, I, you know, you, you just you get older, you mature. Like you said, you're not the same person you were 40 years ago. And that's all. I, I, I'll, I'll leave off with that. It's very sad to hear that his father passed. Yeah, hey, uh, great call, Peter. That's a fine observation. Thank you. Thank you very much. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. We're going to do the $1,000 minute in just a, just a few minutes uh, where we'll give you an opportunity to uh, answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And then uh, we'll do 15 seconds of fame towards the end of this hour where you could sound off on any issue you like for 15 seconds as well. Uh, I am eager to see what uh, the latest what the latest is with uh, Salman Rushdie. If there's any updates on his health, we'll bring that to your attention and a number of other stories that we're uh, going to be that we're going to be watching. All right, uh, why don't we go ahead and do the thousand dollar minute in just a moment? If you want to 
participate in the $1,000 Minute. Be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller and you want to try and answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, go ahead and call now. Now, I have to warn you, you should not call if you don't know how many continents there are. You should not call if you don't know how many letters are in the alphabet. You should not call if you don't know what continent is south of North America. If you – be honest with yourself, right? If you know the answer to those, then you're going to be just fine. Seventh calling now to 800 I want to thank John Kenneth uh, – excuse me, John Kevin Carney, who informed me. I was wondering if you speak with a Scottish accentation, is that called a brogue like it would be if you speak with an Irish accentation? And so John informs me that it's not a Scottish brogue, it's a Scottish burr. So thank you. See, I learned something today. Hopefully you did too. $1,000 Minute, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Moreno. Uh, Well, every morning right around this time, we do our best to try and give away some money uh, to those that are quick-witted, as we do with the... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host... Frank Murano. Uh, let us say hello to Eddie in Flagstaff, Arizona. Hello there, Eddie. Hi, Frank. How you doing? I'm great, Eddie. All right, so you know the rules, right? You're a longtime listener and caller. You know what to do, right? Yeah, I know the rules very well. Okay. Um, you ready to get started? Right away. All right. What is two times two? Four. What do you call a book of maps? Atlas. What famous radio talk show host is the son of radio engineer Ben Stern? Howard Stern. What country currently has the largest population? China. What TV show featured David Hasselhoff driving a talking car? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm sorry. Take a guess. David Hasselhoff's known for two TV shows. I don't know either of them. What'd you say? 
I don't know either of them. Uh, I'm not going right. to get this one. Okay. All right. All right. Yes. Knight Rider. Knight Rider. Uh, okay. <laughs> you never heard of Knight Rider? I don't, I don't watch movies. Well, it's television, but uh, yeah, I, I understand. I, I, I don't really watch television either, but I'm aware that Knight Rider exists. All right, Eddie, hang on. You got you made it up to question number five. Uh, give uh, Avery, Avery, if you would take Eddie's information. There you go. See, love this show. I mean, it was okay for its time. Then you have William Daniels. A shadowy yes. flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. Such a cool car. And then William Daniels, who plays the voice. Michael Knight, a young loner on a crusade to champion the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, in a world of criminals who operate above the law. Love that. All right. Uh, but yeah, William Daniels, who uh, is still going strong. He's like 93. Uh, I uh, when I, I interviewed him a couple of years ago and we spent a lot of time, obviously, talking about 1776, which is my favorite musical. Spent a little bit of time talking about The Graduate and uh, we spent a little bit of time talking about Boy Meets World. But we spent a substantial amount of time talking about Knight Rider and probably won't surprise you if you've seen the show. He really didn't get to meet David Hasselhoff until they had something like a party after the season wrapped. They had no scenes together. And William Daniels, who's the voice of the car there, Kit, he would record all his scenes, you know, on a soundstage somewhere. Never had to interact with any of the other actors. A pretty, pretty neat gig, if you ask me. But uh, it's not everyone gets a voice like William Daniels, that's for sure. All right. Um, are you familiar with Nutsage? Do you know what Nutsage is? Okay. Nutsage is a weed, or Nutsage is a weed that grows in grass. Now, I have mentioned before, I have mentioned before that my landscaper, great guy, guy by the name of Joe, but This guy is the closest thing in real life that I've ever encountered to the mechanic from Seinfeld. Hey, Tony. Thanks for coming in, Jerry. Sure. I think I know what's going on here. And I just want to hear it from you. But I want you to be straight with me. Don't lie to me, Jerry. You know that motor oil you're putting in there? From one of those quickie lube places, isn't it? Well, I change it so often. I mean, Jerry, I come all the way down motor here. oil is the lifeblood of a car. Okay, you put in a low-grade oil, you can damage vital engine parts. Okay, see this gasket? I have no confidence in that gasket. <laughs> Here's what I want to do. I want to overhaul the entire engine, but it's going to take a major commitment from you. You're going to have to keep it under 60 miles an hour for a while. You got to come in and you got to get the oil changed every thousand miles. How much money is this going to cost me? I don't understand you. It's your own car we're talking about. You know you wrote the wrong mileage down on the form? You barely know the car. You don't know the mileage. You don't know the tire pressure. When was the last time you even checked the washer fluid? But the washer fluid is fine. The washer fluid is not fine. (laughs) My gardener is that mechanic. My landscaper is that mechanic. He gets... 
I'm still hearing it from him because we had this barbecue a month ago and people were walking all over the grass. He lectured my wife and I about this walk all over the grass. So she's got one bush or something uh, that, that he planted that my wife was fond of, and it keeps dying, right? So, or it keeps getting burnt. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I'm just trying to do my own thing. When I'm home, I'm trying to sleep, look after my child, and maybe squeeze in an occasional cigar on my front porch. I, I have no, I, I don't know what's going on with this landscape. But I get the, I get the brunt of hearing the gardener complain, number one. And number two, my wife laments to me how she's being reprimanded constantly by the landscaper. And so there's this bush that keeps having a tough time. And so the gardener, the landscaper, keeps accusing my wife of using miracle Grow Because miracle Grow is one of those things that it does burn your grass and it causes all sorts of problems. I don't know how it got such a good reputation to begin with, but it causes all sorts of problems. And so Rachel is telling him, no, I'm not using miracle Grow," And he's insistent, insistent that the only way that something could happen to that plant is with her using miracle Grow." And she says, she'll say to him, why would I lie to you about using miracle Grow? First of all, why would I use miracle Grow when you have expressly said, don't use miracle Grow"? And then if I were sneaking miracle Grow onto this plant, why would I lie to you about my using miracle Grow? So he, they appear to have accepted that. Okay. There's something called nutsedge, which is a little, they're these weeds that grow in the lawn. It's not grass. It, they're weeds that grow within the grass. So I don't know what happened. The other day, there was a lot of noise going on in the house. Maybe Carmine was crying. Maybe there were people over. Maybe there was music playing. I don't know. So I step outside to take a phone call, and I see this nutsedge in the lawn. And for whatever reason, it's driving me crazy. And it's all over the place. It's all over the place. And I said, let me pluck a couple. Let me pluck. And it, for some reason, it was just so satisfying to pluck these weeds right out from their roots. So that was a few days ago. Saturday, as you know, I am free of electronics. And so I'm, I'm looking for tasks that will induce boredom. So that boredom can have the beneficial impact on my brain that studies show that it does. So I plan to spend hours plucking nutsedge from the lawn. Hours. And my wife is is yelling at me. She's mocking me. She's saying, you're not going to do anything. That's not going to do anything. It's just going to come back. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm getting it from its roots. And she said, no, it doesn't matter. And I said, well, so it does, if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. She said, at the pace you're going, this is going to take you hours. I said, so let it take me hours. So while I'm out there plucking, and, uh, you know, it's a beautiful day, Saturday was, but I'm out there plucking. All of a sudden, the landscaper comes. And then he shouts to me from his truck. He says, hey, um, go ahead and Google nutsedge and see what happens when you pluck it. 
it just regenerates. Now, I haven't Googled it. I will now. But uh, I'll take his word for it that it does regenerate. And so, lo and behold, actually, I just did Google that. It says pulling nuts edge will increase the number of plants because dormant tubers are activated. However, it is possible to control small stands of nuts edge by persistent pulling. Pulling will eventually weaken the plants and cause them to die out. See? Well, okay, so it's a... So I, I, I get half credit, I think. So anyway, I don't know what you guys do with Nutsedge, but if you have any good suggestions on how to, other than plucking, to have this go away, let me know. I mean, he trimmed the grass, and obviously it's fine for a couple of days, but this Nutsedge grows so quickly. It grows so much more quickly than the rest of the grass. So I don't know what your, if you have a method of dealing with this, but it's very very frustrating that you see this nicely manicured lawn and then just patches and patches of nutsedge. Um, it's very frustrating. So anyway, as I'm getting up, because I have to move away from the lawn on Saturday because Joe is now going to do his thing and landscape it. Joe, and I think he was joking. I think he was. There's no way to know for sure with a guy that takes lawn care as seriously as Joe does. As I'm walking away from the lawn, Joe shouts to my wife. He says, hey, I see miracle Grow in your husband's back pocket. He's sneaking miracle Grow onto your plants. Now, I'm pretty sure he was joking, but there's just no way to know. Now, hey, speaking of sneaking, top of the hour, you know what happened, or actually top of the last hour. I have talked about this before. I've been very open about this. This is the kind of thing I would never tell someone if I ever ran into them in real life. It's the kind of thing I only share on the radio. But one of my many, many poor habits is I absolutely love sticking things in my ear. Absolutely love it. Love it, love it, love it. Pen caps, love it. Like a cocktail straw, phenomenal. Just love it. Just, I mean... For whatever reason, I almost get a similar thrill to sticking things in my ear. Not quite as good, but almost as satisfying as cracking my knuckles, right? Which I do constantly. So anyway, I'm in the kitchen before. And I know there's the cameras in the kitchen, so you're never really alone. But I'm in the kitchen before, waiting for my cup of coffee to be made. And I see a giant cup in front of me. By the way, if you have calls on the Nutsedge front, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. Giant cup in front of me of coffee stirrers, little, like, wooden coffee stirrers. They look wooden. And I said, huh. So sure enough, I take one of these coffee stirrers and I stick it in my ear. Feels great. Feels absolutely great. Giving it a little twirl, a little rotation. It's outstanding. And then, at that very moment, Deb Valentine, who anchors the early news on WABC in New York at 5, you know, 5 o'clock Eastern, she comes in and says, hey, Frank Morano. Now, I'm trying, now I've clearly been caught in the act, but I can't be sure, because she's about 30 feet away, can't be sure if she saw me sticking the coffee stirrer in my ear. So I'm trying to act natural, trying not to make any sudden movements. 
because if I make a sudden movement, then it clearly looks like I was up to something. Then the question becomes, what are you up to? And so I keep essentially the coffee stirrer in my ear because I'm trying to act like I wasn't doing anything bad. But now she's close to me. Now she sees this coffee stirrer. And I'm trying to use my very, very powerful skills of small talk to move us off the coffee stirrer focal point. And, I mean, no telling how it worked out, but it was uh, incredibly embarrassing. So um, I would encourage you, if, you're, if you have the same kind of a ear fetish that I do, to exercise caution because you never know. You never know who's entering. In entering the kitchen where these coffee stirrers will be doing their thing. Um, hey, you know whose birthday it is today? It is the birthday of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, 84 years old. If there's anybody that is due for retirement, it is Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Term limits anybody. My goodness. Uh, Also, uh, you don't think of Ben Affleck as somebody that is eligible for AARP. Well, as of today, he is. Award-winning actor Ben Affleck, who's played Batman and been in, you know, The Town, which was a great film. And uh, Goodwill Hunting. He is 50 years of age today. And uh, one of my favorite actresses, Jennifer Lawrence, 32 years of age today. So happy birthday to all of them and to all of you if you're celebrating a uh, a birthday today. And ironically, I was mentioning uh, Deb Valentine. It was her birthday over the weekend. She and her husband did a whole three-day birthday celebration. So if you run into her today, be sure to wish her a happy birthday. Uh, All right. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in just a bit. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You can also email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Especially if you have any additional tips on the uh, handling the nuts edge situation because we could use all the help that we can get there. All right. Uh, we'll do 15 seconds of fame upcoming. 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. My thanks to Andy B. for this terrific theme song. Hey, you know who's going to be here tomorrow? I believe he's going to be here in studio. That will be a lot of fun. Uh, my friend Richard Bay is going to be here. He's in town from uh, from Florida, which is uh, where all the New Yorkers moved to. So we're going to talk about uh, a lot of things in the news and uh, a lot of things from yesteryear and a bunch of other things. And uh, this week, I'm not sure if it's going to be tomorrow or the following day, we will also chat with uh, legendary radio talk show host Malachi McCourt. So I'm looking forward to uh, looking forward to both of those conversations. You know who I have to um, take issue with is Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is quoted in this new book as uh, essentially calling Bernie Sanders a sexist. So there's this new book out. It's called Electable by NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitali. And it focuses on the 2020 presidential campaign and the preponderance of female candidates who sought the Democratic presidential nomination that year. Because, of course, you had Tulsi Gabbard, you had Kamala Harris, you had Amy Klobuchar, um, you know, a couple of others, uh, Marianne Williamson. And... Hillary Clinton was interviewed for this book, and she rips Bernie Sanders like crazy, essentially as a male chauvinist. And this is what she says, quote, I know the kind of things that he says about women and to women. So um, what kind of thing is that to say? If you know the things that he says about women and to women, so much so that are, they're so damaging that you feel the need to mention that he has a woman problem and cast aspersions about his character, well, tell us what they are. What does he say about women and to women? I mean, or don't say anything. You don't just, I mean, that's the equivalent of, uh, hey, uh, do you know, uh, do you know uh, Curtis Sliwa? Oh, you should hear the kind of things that Curtis Lee says about X. All right. Well, how do you defend against that? Bernie Sanders can't come out and say, I never said X. Or, you know, he can't say, I never told so-and-so that. No, how about a specific allegation, Hillary? The only thing that uh, they get into in the articles that have been written about the book is that confrontation you remember that he had with Elizabeth Warren, one of the other women that ran for president two years ago, when um, Elizabeth Warren claimed in the debate that uh, that she was having with Bernie Sanders and the other candidates that uh, Bernie told her that a woman was unelectable. And Bernie says that he never said that. And then Elizabeth Warren, this was one of those hot mic moments that was caused. She walks over to uh, Bernie Sanders after the debate, and she says, I think you called me a liar on national TV. And Bernie Sanders responds with, what? After Warren repeats herself, Sanders tries to shrug off saying, let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion, we'll have that discussion. So Hillary Clinton, who was watching that altercation uh, unfold on TV, tells the author of this book, I believed her, meaning Elizabeth Warren, Because I know Sanders, 
And I know the kind of things that he says about women and to women. So I thought that she was telling an accurate version of the conversation they'd had. Now, I want you to keep in mind, she had no knowledge of this conversation. She was not present for the conversation. She, nobody, as far as we know, told her about the conversation. She found out about this conversation when the rest of the world found out about this conversation. To me, what this looks like is Hillary Clinton is still bitter towards Bernie Sanders for even deigning to run against her back in 2016. And she is trying to do whatever she can to damage his reputation without any evidence whatsoever. In this case, making him look like a chauvinist and a sexist when there's no evidence for that that she provides. He may be a a chauvinist and a sexist. But if that's the case, Hillary, if you feel comfortable enough besmirching his character, well, at least tell us why. Tell us why that's the case. All right. Um, 800-848-9222. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, we're going to get to you momentarily. And if you want to email me, you could certainly do so at uh, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And uh, without further ado, it is time for... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Let me begin with Troy in Babylon. Hey, Troy, it was great to meet you out in Deer Park the other day. Man, it's me too. I want to give a shout to the Nassau County Police Department. They came out and helped the blind guy get across the street. They helped the, helped the blind guy find the bus that kept driving by like it was invisible. But he stopped the bus. He helped me get on that guy. Oh, yeah, home safe. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Troy. Mike in New Jersey. Morning, Frank. Frank, the only thing you're supposed to stick in your ear is your elbow. Okay? You shouldn't mess around in there, Frank. The inner ear is very sensitive. Mike in Lake George. Good morning again, Frank. You know, uh, real quick, I was at a diner years ago in Oceanside. I see Howard Stern's parents. They both shopped at my father's supermarket in Rockwell Center. Ben Stern says to me, I got this for you, Michael. It's a card that said, sit down, shut up, you moron. I was crying. <laughs> but rest, rest in peace, Ben. Rest in peace. Neil. Johnny Katz, help me out. I need a favor from you. Thank Frank Verano's congestive pricing fee and Don the Carter's too. <laughs> Mike in New Jersey. Your son. Your son's crawling. You need to put your hand behind his feet so he has something to push off of. Get down on the floor with him. Help him out. Don't let him just flounder there. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, For those aficionados of the TV show Jeopardy, you have to rhetorically ask yourself, what could possess any contestant to go to their library and memorize thousands of functionally useless facts without critical thinking? Tony in Brooklyn. Hey, Frank, I've been off grid for nine months, so I want to say congratulations on Young Carmine. It seems that the Democratic Party's imploding. And come on, Yankees, can we get some hits? Thank you. E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, uh, Curtis complains about the swagger man with no plan. I'm the Christian with no priorities. Why doesn't he believe that Jesus will help the city of New York somehow? Uh, David in the Bronx. After listening to Bernie Sanders debate Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren, it has become my belief he is a misogynist. Ralph in New Jersey. 
President Marcos should be with John Katsimatidis and Lydia Shiranai in September. I hope so. Thank you. And finally, Howard in Elmhurst. He's a very vengeful character. She's probably still mad at his speech in Bryant Park. We make fun of her, how much a speech costs to a big organization. Uh, thank you, Howard. We'll uh, we'll end it there. Hey, you know, I, I think um, I think that's all possible. I, I think she just, you know, I, I think she's just upset at the way 2016 went down, and for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that she didn't win, and she has no problem, you know, bashing everybody that she feels contributed to her, um, you know, to her losing in 2016. Hey, it is interesting. Uh, a friend of mine, you know, I'm friends with a couple. They're they're attorneys, and they um, are were kind enough to put together our will, our living will, and our you know healthcare proxy for my wife and I. Because now that you have a a child, you start to think about this stuff, right? So my friend, my our friend Marianne. She's kind enough to do all this legal work for free. And this is like a couple of thousand dollars of legal work. We priced it with another attorney before Marianne had made this offer to do it for free. $2,000. $2,000. So she's essentially saving us $2,000 by doing this will for free. And so I asked her husband, who's a, a close friend of mine, I said, you know, I'd like to get Marianne a little gift or something, or something that she would enjoy. What does she like to drink? So he gives me the particular wine that she likes to drink. I go into three different liquor stores until I could find this particular wine. I find it. And we're on the way to Brooklyn. There are offices in Brooklyn. My wife and I with young Carmine. And we're poised to walk into her office. And I'm carrying a bag as if it's from the liquor store. And my wife says, no, you can't give her that like that. I said, why not? She says, no, it doesn't look good. you got to get a gift bag or something. I said, well, I don't have a gift bag. And she says, well, forget it. We're not giving that to her. We'll give it to her the next time we see her. I said, well, when's the next time we're going to see her be? It might be a month from now. It might be two months. It might be more. She said, put it back in the car. That's it. We're not giving it to her that way. Okay. And now she realizes we're going into this office empty-handed now for somebody that's doing us a big favor. So... She says, all right, see if you can look up where you can buy a gift bag near here. So sure enough, I find a card store some ways away. And she she says, all right, um, go there real quick and do what you can. Now, what would you do at this point? Would you not give the wine because there's not a proper gift bag? Or would you give the wine... In the liquor store bag. Now, fortunately, I was able to find a drug store that had not had a proper gift bag for this wine, and we were spared having to make this decision. But this was a major point of contention between the two of us for a good five or six minutes. I my view was that Marianne wouldn't have cared, that she wouldn't have cared about the gift bag, and that she would have been happy with the wine, even if it was look like it was from a liquor store. Now, obviously, through the prism of hindsight, and the only reason I didn't do this is because I was rushed, through the prism of hindsight, I should have had the liquor store give me 
a proper wine gift bag. But ultimately, found the gift bag, and uh, it was a pleasant interaction all around. And now we have a will. So I told Carmine, if we perish, he gets all of our assets. So big thank you to Marianne Bertuna for uh, coming through like that for us. And uh, hopefully you enjoy that wine and that gift bag, which was not easy to come by. All right. I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, We're going to have a good time tomorrow. In the meantime, Frank Moreno, good day.